Welcome back to Homestuck Made This World, a show about critical analysis and contextualization of the webcomic Homestuck. I'm Michael, and with me is my co-host, Cameron. Yep. Today, we begin Episode 9 of Homestuck Made This World with Episode 9, Part 1. How many episodes of this uh, program are we doing here? Oh. We're on Episode 9. How many? Aren't there, like, a finite number? Yeah, yeah. There's just 13 episodes. So we're really... How about that? Yeah. yeah. We're we're in the final, like, uh, little quarter now. Wow. Mm-hmm. The wizard's quarter, as they call it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the traditional, like, that's, I remember learning that in uh, uh, in math class when they were teaching yeah, us. Yeah, for... like, 13's a baker's dozen, uh-huh. and the final quarter of a baker's dozen is the wizard's quarter. Yes. We all know that. Mm-hmm. Um, any, any, uh, updates from you, Cameron, before I jump into the summary? We got any, like, F-Boy Island things to talk about? Nope, I don't believe there have been any episodes of F-Boy Island released since the last time they, that we recorded, so people are truly up to date for something that happened for them, oh, eight weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think so, I think you can go right into it. All right, cool. <clears throat> Act 6, Act 5 opens with Jake feeling wistful on his planet, the land of Mounds and Xenon. His friendly guide Aerosol Sprite, a self-loathing combination of Aridin and Sullux, insults and complains about him. He then receives a message from Dirk inviting him to adventure on Strider's planet, the land of Tombs and Krypton, but Dirk is both self-conscious and overbearing. Looking for romantic advice, Jake messages Jane, who is with Roxy on her planet, the land of Pyramids and Neon, preparing for Jane's 16th birthday party the following day. It turns out that in addition to using her as an emotional heat sink, Jake has forgotten Jane's birthday, and Jane loses her shit on him before running off crying, canceling her party. Roxy is left alone with the G-Cat and Fafetta Sprite, an adorable combination of Fafari and Nepeta. Then, the G-Cat whimsically teleports Roxy to Purpo, where she is immediately captured by the Condess. On her way home, Jane is contacted by Caliborn, who asserts that he wants to make friends, but instead harasses her with misogynist and fatphobic insults, claiming that her father has been captured by agents of Purpo and tortured to death. Jane runs to her house, now even more upset. On Purpo, the draconian dignitary visits Dad in a luxurious prison suite, where his impeccable fatherly style ensures he is treated with utmost respect and in fact has become a minor Purpo celebrity. In a flashback to a rainy evening on post-apocalyptic Earth, Roxy works on her wizard fanfiction, a story called Wizardy Herbert. It's a strange document about some kids who have become trapped in a worse wizard fic interior to the story itself. The power goes out suddenly, and through a dark fenestrated wall, Roxy sees the fractures Lord English has made in the furthest ring. Serenity the Firefly suddenly appears, and by speaking in Morse code, reveals she is Calliope in disguise, and that Roxy is dreaming. Roxy follows Calliope through the dream bubbles, wandering through a strange version of her own home that is actually Rose's house from the beginning of the comic. Eventually, she passes through a door and emerges from a physical representation of Spurb's green house icon, following a spiraling trail to a black hole where she meets Calliope, who is uncertain about her appearance and thus takes the form of her troll Sona. 
Calliope explains she is being hunted by her brother and must guard herself carefully. She feels ashamed for how her belief that she could work with Caliborn has panned out and reports that her only sliver of hope is finding an alternate version of herself from a doomed timeline in which she was the one who predominated. She also explains that while the Condess is working for her brother, the Batter Witch also has her own plans that may be used to their advantage. The meeting is interrupted by Rose, whose presence Calliope fears will attract Lord English, and so she wakes both Lalans. Roxy finds herself in a less luxurious Purpo prison cell with a briefing from the Condess explaining what she wants Roxy to do, which we are not immediately told, but which Roxy considers impossible. The courtyard droll discreetly passes Roxy a phone and a plain gold ring. Using the phone, Roxy tries to contact Dirk, but is met with the autoresponder's autoresponder. Meanwhile, Dirk and the regular autoresponder talk about the Jake situation, whose weirdness Dirk attributes to the autoresponder's controlling behaviors and general intensification of aspects of himself Dirk doesn't like, e.g. making its own autoresponder. Indeed, Dirk is in general upset by his sense that he can't escape himself. Now he believes that the autoresponder might be dangerous, and despite keeping his kernel sprite free of Gamzee's troll corpse tossing interference, Dirk is reluctant to follow through on a promise to prototype the autoresponder itself. He backs away from destroying the AI, however, when it expresses fear of dying, only to discover that Gamzee has used this opportunity to throw Equius's corpse into the Colonel Sprite. Dirk says fuck it and throws his sunglasses in anyway, resulting in the ridiculously strong, blisteringly intelligent, unbearably condescending Arqueous Sprite, who's incredibly jazzed about being alive and having a body and orders Dirk to feel up his muscles. Roxy tries to contact Jake, who is immediately distracted by Caliborn. Under the guise of mentorship, Caliborn advises Jake to kill himself and go god-tier. Caliborn explains that as a lord of time, his rise to ultimate power through the class-spec system of the game is basically inevitable, and while he waits for that to happen, he has decided to groom Jake to become his worthy nemesis. He gives Jake a code to a powerful item, his personal magic MacGuffin, and says that he would also hand over Calliope's, but hers has already disappeared, meaning she gifted it to someone else. Regardless, Caliborn doesn't need either anymore, because he's found one much better. In the dead session, Gamzee has retrieved both Little Seb the Robot Bunny and Dirk's lost instance of Little Cal, the latter of which Caliborn has claimed as his new MacGuffin. While he initially found the puppet disturbing and somehow empty, he now believes that Cal is destined to be filled with his soul, and all who interact with it shall be touched in some way by his malicious will. On Purpo, in the Alpha Kids game, Gamzee carries with him the instance of Lil' Cal that Kanaya fixed up with a fancy green suit way back in Act 5. It winks at him. And that's where we leave off for today. A little, little bit of a breather after last time. It winks at him and he hates it. Yeah, he's he's not uh well he's he's got the that look of uh Don't wink at me. It's like disappointment or something, like both disappointment and shock. I don't know. Yeah. If anyone this is the face I make if anyone winks at me. Uh, uh, don't do it. Okay. <laughs> don't wink. <laughs> it's unnatural. Yeah. But, uh, well, yeah. Good app. Good app. Um, it's fairly simple this time, I think. I mean, there's there's a lot of sort of stuff that unfolds kind of outside of the story here uh, compared to the, the sort of slim amount that we read. Um, but 
are there any particular thoughts that you had or questions you wanted to ask out of the gate, Cameron? <sighs> What's up with this uh, Wizardy Herbert guy? What's he doing? Oh, so yeah, Wizardy what's Herbert. Her, what's her? What's Wizardy Herbert doing? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> what's that guy up to? What's Wizardy Herbert doing? Well, mostly what's what... uh, what's uh, what's he doing? What's he? His little wizard. What's he up to? What's that little wizard doing? Here's the thing: is that he's not a wizard. <laughs> he just shoots them. He's a Herbert, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about this in a minute. We can we can pause on Wizardy Herbert first because uh, what's with all of the why are the trolls in the sprites? And why is there a big time jump? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, you know, the the practicalities here uh, might just be was like... There, sorry, but before we even get into the actual real answer, was there a, a gap? I didn't look. <laughs> was there like a production gap at the beginning of this reading? Uh, no, this reading actually started pretty soon after the, the previous reading ended. It, this wasn't like, uh, between like Caliborn Enter and then sort of the first Mina walk around, uh, right. where, where we had like a, a pretty sizable, about a month gap of, of updates. Um, let me just double check the dates here. Cause I'm thinking yeah, Axe Exact 5 started on, yeah, 1128. Um, and so maybe there was... No, it's all all kind of of a piece. Yeah, eleven twenty seven was when uh, uh, the last intermission with uh, Caliborn happened. So, yeah, this happened uh, uh, pretty quickly. Uh, what this like one of the things that the time skip does. Uh, we've actually already saw this in uh, Act Six, Act Four, Void, uh, which was I didn't mention this in my summary. That was the very brief one in, in the previous partisode after the Mina walk arounds and before Caliborn uh, sort of becomes like the central character. There's a very brief moment where we see all of the alpha kids in their session, like just playing the game. Uh, and you actually see Jack Noir in his prison cell, like marking the time on the wall. And of course, people in the thread like have paused, you know, they've extracted the flash and they've like paused it and they've counted how many days Jack has put on the wall. And so they realize like, oh, about five months have passed in the game. So for about five-ish months of like these characters time or whatever, they're just stuck in this void session, like fighting skeleton monsters and waiting for the next thing to happen, which is, uh, you know, the, the as the legendary tablets on Jane's planet explain it, uh, is supposedly the arrival of the four original kids who they call the, the gods. Mm hmm. So, you know, there's like in narrative terms, this is why a time skip happens uh, or, or I guess, you know, technical terms. Here's here's where we've been sort of uh, primed for this. One of the things that this allows us to do uh, is imagine a whole bunch of things that could have happened that we don't have to really apprehend with any specificity. And now we can jump into like, you know, the consequences like of the the Jake Dirk stuff. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. There were all these discussions about uh, what was Dirk being manipulative, so on and so forth after like the whole uh, head kissing gambit. Um and now we just like sort of jump forward and these we meet these characters at kind of a different point in their relationship uh, downstream of that. Um, this is something that uh, Homestuck really likes to do. I don't know if you've picked up on this yet, Cameron. 
Uh, I guess not. Say more. In the sense of like, uh, at one point, like, uh, at in the previous part episode, uh, mm-hmm. Jade Sprite or yeah, Jade and uh, Dave Sprite were mm-hmm. dating. Except we only right, learned right, that right, they were right. dating after they've broken up. Right. Right. Uh, we also learned that Terezi and Gamzee might have some sort of like spades uh, uh, style romance going on. And we learned that indirectly through something that Rose says. Right. Rose saw mm-hmm. something that we never see. Mm-hmm. Honk, honk. Yes. So uh, one of the really uh, fascinating strategies that Homestuck tends to deploy around the way that it writes character relationships is to assert that these relationships exist sort of factually within the narrative, um, but very rarely show you what those relationships look like in practice. Mm -hmm. One of the things that happens then is that you get like what we have here with Dirk and Jake, where, you know, we, we get, we, we have kind of all the buildup to them right before they enter the game. We have uh, the severed head thing that kind of like, capstones all of that and sort of, you know, officially initiates the relationship um, after, you know, Jake has uh, uh, had his conversation with Jane and kind of set his own thing in motion there. Uh, And then we just kind of like skip forward. And now we have Jake who is like, oh, actually, Dirk is kind of intense. And I'm not sure if I want to be in a relationship with him. And now we can like move forward in the plot from there. Uh, in, in like very specific Homestuck terms, what this means is that uh, the fandom gets what it wants and Hussey still gets to move the story forward because now the, the fandom has five months of time in which Jake and Dirk can be together and you can set all of your fix in that kind of uh, like little span. Mm-hmm. Right. Same thing with Jade and Dave Sprite. Uh, we know that they dated, but we don't have to really know the specifics. We can now now that ship has kind of a, a sort of canonicity that you can explore in your fan fiction and your fan art. Uh, but also Hussey doesn't have to do any of the work to like make that a thing that is like integral to the story. Right. right. Uh, obviously, what's happening with Dirk Jake is a little more central because we're seeing, um, you know, the build up and the fallout. Uh, but this is. I will say this, uh, of the relationships in Homestuck, the one that you see the most of, like, developing and working as a relationship, is Rose and Kanaya. Uh-huh. Right? Oh, I, right, like, because it actually is, like, all canonically confirmed in front of the camera. Right, it, uh, like, the stuff happens in front of the camera with them that very rarely happens with other relationships. Um, right. And I think that's really interesting, because, like I said, it... it uh, on the one hand, like fits very neatly into uh, what the fandom wants uh, or like could want. Right. It gives fandom sort of like uh, a delineated spaces in which to explore various relationships. Um, but it also means that like things are kind of constantly happening with these characters that are happening off camera. And we learn about obliquely and we just sort of like speed along. And it's a very, Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know how it feels for you, but I know uh, in the serial reading experience, it could feel kind of weird, right? It was very herky jerky. Hmm. Uh, In the parlance of the day, uh, we put dream bubbles in your dream bubbles (laughs) so that you can fic while you fic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't it doesn't feel I mean obviously it's like all right wait hold on what happened the last time I read this you know there's a little bit of that but other than that it's like I mean it, it serves the function you're talking about it's pretty clear what the stakes are as they happen uh especially because we're in like 
maximal teen feelings. Mm-hmm. We're in soap opera town. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? We've been in YA, YA village, mm-hmm. and now we're in soap opera town. <laughs> Someone literally has a little mustache. <laughs> A little, a little devious, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> a little arbitrary devious mustache. Because <laughs> so, it's like, these relationships only exist now to be blown up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that's it. It's We're only in the aftermath. Yes. Uh, and it's all negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very funny to me, you know, I, I, there's a couple ways of reading it, right? Like, for the alpha kids in these relationships. W- uh, one is that, in the in the same way that the trolls, like the Alternia that we, yeah, I guess uh, Alternia versus Beforia, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> yeah, right. But it, it like the Alternian trolls, right? They are uh, an intensification and acceleration of teen feelings, right? Based, uh, you know, uh, compared to their predecessors of some sort who were involved in a uh, pirate romance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> No, you know, experience. They're in a different genre. Uh, the alpha kids are similarly, right, in an intensification of the emotional stakes of the original kids. Mm-hmm. Earth One kids. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. So one way of reading that is to be like, oh, it's because Homestuck itself is changing. It's because the audience is getting bigger, although we are probably at the peak right now, right? At, at this moment, you know, mm-hmm. tw- end of 2012 is like the height of Homestuck in, in terms of people reading the actual comic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, the, so so one way of reading it is the audience is bigger and changing. Hussey is trying to get their hands around that, trying to figure that out. And their solution to it is to quadruple down on all of the emotional and uh, kind of YA-ish melodrama stakes, Mm -hmm. right? That's one way of reading what happened here. The other way, right, which is like in-text, you know, solely in-text, new criticism style. The other way of reading this is that when Doc Scratch and, and, uh, you know, Lord English get their hands on a world, you know, and they they are involved in the replicate, replicative, no the uh secondary creation oh oh yeah no no not that uh she wore blue velvet uh the when they get their hands on it right these baddos uh they make everything more than it was before Yes. Right. You know, they make it more intense. All the feelings are sharper and with worse edges to it, right? Mm -hmm. Everything hurts on the way in and everything hurts on the way out of your heart Mm -hmm. because you're a teenager. And and it's interesting. I imagine, I have no idea one way or the other you could tell me, but I imagine there are probably people reading reading it both ways at the time. Um, I would think that people would come to multiple different kinds of conclusions of it, but it is pretty interesting, like, reading it now in the archival reading experience of, like, I know, given the production history, that that's certainly in the mix, right? Mm -hmm. But I can definitely... There are the tools within the text to give you an explanation of why this is occurring. And both are, like, equally plausible in the sense of, like, well, why is this happening as opposed to, like, you know, two years ago when I was reading this? Um, And you could could say both. And both feel right, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, I, 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 so what you described in, uh, your sort of second point about like when like Doc Scratch and Lord English, like, uh, mm-hmm. get their hands on it or whatever, and they intensify certain aspects. Uh, this is the reading that is most interesting to me historically, because that's what seems to be the obvious kind of takeaway here. And that ends up, uh, again, cause like Homestuck's, uh, ending is not really in sight. Uh, no one really knows where this is going. Uh, you know, I, I figured out, like I said, I think I figured out a kind of maneuver, but it's the steps that uh, how we get there and sort of like the specificity of, of how it plays out is what I'm interested in seeing. Um, and so what I am thinking through is like, what does it mean that we have uh, these sort of villain narrator uh, things uh like villain narrators who are also readers, right? Like that's mm-hmm. part of like the chain of logic here that gets really uh, uh, weird and interesting to me is that at this point, the comic seems to be saying you, the bad reader who uh, hates relationships and all this stuff or whatever, uh, when you really get your hands into the work. Uh, in fact, what happens is you just like intensify all of the things that you're constantly complaining about. Um, or like, you know, secretly, like this is this is all part of your plan to uh, uh, like uh, try to have dominion over this story or something. Right. Uh, like, I don't know where this is going and I can't really like parse out what is happening or like where that might be going. People don't really read it in that way. They do understand mm-hmm. the world as um, like the sort of post scratch world is somehow flawed. Uh, but there is always kind of a. uh a sense that uh, the characters could and will overcome that, right? Like mm-hmm. that uh, the things that are happening are kind of uh, not really in any way, uh, uh, you know, related to the fact that Scratch has, in- like that Scratch played a part in engineering the creation of this story. Um, that's just sort of discounted. Uh, mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, one of the, I mean, one thing that someone says is like, it seems like Hussey just doesn't seem interested in writing relationships. Hussey would rather just write the aftermath. I think one of the other things that's actually pretty interesting about that and sort of worth pointing out relative to like uh, the way that young adult fiction tended to operate at the time, maybe still operates now. Uh, but, you know, we also had in, in the dream bubbles in the previous part episode, Vriska sort of offhandedly mentions that she dated like the, the beta John who died and then she met. Right. Right. right, right, right. So there are all these kind of off screen relationships that are like happening or like starting and stopping. Uh, and again, sort of compared or contrasted against a lot of YA fiction. Um, the message here seems to be like. The first person you date isn't going to be the only person you're going to date. Mm-hmm. Right. That there are like like, you know, the, there's the romance uh, that is so central to a lot of YA about like, you know, the relationship that ends all relationships, the relationship that, you know, is going to be the one. And in fact, uh, like, you know, in The Hunger Games uh, or Twilight, which one of those relationships wins out between uh, the two guys and, and the um lady protagonist the like that's kind of the engine of those stories and it relies on this idea that in the case of you know twilight you're going to marry someone you met in high school right 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 and so what i think is interesting about the way that relationships get handled here is that it does in fact take this kind of uh 
maybe maybe sort of by accident right like maybe hussy entirely is just like oh i'll just like put these things in so then the shippers can have like places to to fit in their fanfics and you know like fun little spaces to speculate um but i also think one of the the upshots of it is that it despite the absurdity of everything that happens in this comic it ends up having a slightly more measured uh way of engaging with like teen romance especially like in this mm -hmm. case uh jake and dirk and jake being like i don't think i actually like this relationship i don't know if this is good for me or for us uh and <laughs> you know like your, your romance does not dominate what your life is right yeah you're uh you're uh oh there you might not have an otp Right. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That might be wrong. That might be your what you think is your OTP might be bad for you. Mm -hmm. I will say I think it's very unfortunate that you have just uh, blown up my new novel, uh, Two Guys and Lady Protagonist, and I, I'm <laughs> going to need you to uh, edit that out of the episode. Okay. All um, right. I've been working on Two Guys and Lady Protagonist for a very long time now, and uh, since about, oh, I don't know, 2011, um, and, uh, you know, Containing such chapters as uh, "Big Beautiful Dress," uh -huh. <laughs> uh, "The Lowly Peasant Boy," mm -hmm. um, "Mending Fences with Big Strong Jaw," mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, "Graduation." So, mm -hmm. I've been working hard on that. Please, uh, uh, OC, do not steal. Number one, <laughs> and uh, number two, um, I've been self-publishing it. <laughs> I'm in chapter 281. Um, she's finally discovered uh, what it's like to go to the fancy party. Ooh, nice. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Well, keep keep an eye out for uh, uh, two guys and lady protagonist on Lulu and Amazon Kindle singles. Please, it's an indie bound project. <laughs> oh, come on. Gosh, have some decency. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, that's like thematics, right? These are ways of looking at what mm -hmm. this thing is doing with romance. The other thing that I want to point out then, because this is something that's very, uh, prominent in the Something Awful thread and shows up with a slightly different cast in, in some Tumblr posts as well. Uh, but there are also people, and a whole lot of discussion, uh, is had about this, who are sort of approaching these relationship situations kind of just as givens, right? So, like, mm. uh, Dirk and Jake are a given, and now that that relationship is sort of, like, uh, you know, fragmenting or breaking up, uh, it becomes this kind of weird uh, interpretive race to figure out, like... <sighs> What's like, what is the truth of Dirk, if that makes sense, right? Like, what is the truth of Jake and what is the truth of their relationship? And that's not, those are not the terms that are being used. But I mean, mm -hmm. things like, uh, well, Jake obviously feels like Dirk is overbearing, but like, you have to remember that Dirk grew up alone, uh, on a tower in the middle of the ocean on post-apocalyptic earth and never encountered any other human directly in the flesh in his entire life until now. And so, of course, he's going to be a little bit clingy. And so Jake should really, like, consider that when he makes these complaints about how overbearing Dirk can be. Um, and so, like, that's, that's a... 
I mean, that you're reading the story, right? Uh, but that's mm-hmm. a, a tactic that gets more prominent here, especially it's it's similar to like, you know, well, you have to understand that Vriska uh, had a giant spider for a mom and the giant spider made her kill other kids and, and uh, feed them to her. Uh, mm-hmm. And so anything that Vriska does has to be understood in light of that. Um, you right. know, this is it's, it's uh, the, uh, who among us Michael, right. <laughs> is not defined by the giant spider that sets the context for all their thoughts and actions. <laughs> right. If you're above it. If you're above it, send us an email. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then the, um, uh, you know, the other thing here is like uh, later on when Dirk is talking with the autoresponder and we get Dirk saying like pretty clearly and, and uh, plainly like. All of the stuff that happened with that weird little uh, time loop gambit where everyone had to die so that they could be resurrected and so that, like, Jake could kiss my head. Uh, Dirk is saying that, like, it's the autoresponder who really, like, nudged all of that into place. And so then we get these discussions where it's like, well, people are like, well, look, Dirk is manipulative because the autoresponder did this, this and this. And then we have people saying you can't judge Dirk for what the autoresponder did. Um. Because, like, you know, the story does treat the autoresponder as kind of a distinct character. But again, yeah. uh, it's Hal. Yeah, it's a little it's Hal. It's just Hal. It's <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, the other Hal. Uh-huh. Yeah, also, also literally. <laughs> right. I mean, it is fascinating to me. I, this is something that did come up for me in this episode. Not to I, actually you can. Is there I know you're building maybe to a point. Oh, no, I'm never building to a point. I'm just rambling. No, I got got something I'll say, but I can hold on to it. Continue. Uh, Because, uh, you you know, ah, gosh. uh, ah, There's there's somewhere in here. I didn't write it down. I made a mistake. I I put my pen to paper to write a page down to reference this, and now I I, I clearly didn't do that. But... um, there's a discussion that's happening in this this part of the reading that we did for like around the concept of how liable can one be for what happens with the thing that you build. Yes. Now, Michael, mm-hmm. what if you, I don't know, made a very popular piece of media? Mm-hmm. Let's just imagine that. You made some sort of grinning cat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's say. And the grinning cat became, uh, I guess, I could say, uh, uh, annoying to you. Mm-hmm. Do you think you would write in your canonical stories of grinning cat? Do you think you would write in? I don't know uh, a bunch of text about how ultimately the thing that you create is not your fault, and mm-hmm. and but then while simultaneously. Writing a bunch of characters in Grinning Cat, like um, overly invested buffoon and mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> hateful Thomas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you write those characters in there. Um, I don't know. Would that be a thing you would do that you would want to do? Well, to like uh, write write a text that absolves you of all kinds of responsibility for the things you don't like, and then also at the same time uh, thoroughly pillaring <laughs> anyone who engages with your work. <laughs> in a way you don't like I could do that I suppose I just mm-hmm. I haven't touched the original greening cat since I unleashed it on the world in 2008 no 2009 right right, right. but you uh, could I could some sort of official sequel yeah some sort of official sequel to, to grinning cat 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's pretty wild, right? Like it's it's a pretty weird thing where we where Hussey has created characters, uh, multiple characters. Uh, you know, it's like it's not just that the characters are a type of guy, which they are, right? Mm-hmm. We talked about that. All the characters are a type of guy. You know, they are specific summations and slight exaggerations of like internet people types that you run into. Um, but then with like characters that are explicitly fan types, you know, people who engage with the comic. And then you make a character whose entire deal is that they're like kind of an aloof mastermind who always has everything figured out. Mm-hmm. And they've created a thing that is smarter than they are and they kind of hate it. Yep. And it's more flexible and more manipulative and it moves beyond their intentions. And they find that very frustrating to the point of like trying to destroy it, but ultimately in trying to destroy it, only make it more powerful because what else can you do? I mean, it's got a life of its own now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not trying to be, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> allegory Charlie over here, but mm-hmm. come on. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Someone in the thread says this. Someone's like, oh, the autoresponder sounds like like this whole thing with Dirk and the autoresponder where the autoresponder is, you know, based on an image of Dirk's brain from three years ago. Um, <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> Like, and we are in That's year three like of Homestuck. It's like you took Homestuck. some chat logs. You know, you took some chat logs that were from your real life and you put them in a, in a work and then you had to start writing that character all the time and it just took on a life of its own. Wouldn't that be a little bit odd if you did that? Yeah, strange. Uh, so someone points out in the thread, they're like, oh man, it sounds like the relationship between Dirk and the autoresponder is the relationship between Hussey and like, you know, MS Paint Adventures but uh, or like, you know, Homestuck itself. Uh, and yeah, it's weird that this is... Uh, like structured such that um, Dirk is not really responsible for the thing that he made <laughs> because right. it becomes a thing that is not in his control. It's a thing that becomes uh, a distinct character uh, and compare this with a quote that I read last time about uh, Hussey saying that like, while they still control the comic, uh, the the movement, as they call it, uh, is beyond their control and uh, never really was in their control. Mm hmm. Right. Um, now, like, I, I think that's true in the sense that if you just have like a pop up fandom, uh, like you aren't in control of it. Right. It does. It goes off and, and does stuff uh, that you don't expect. And you I mean, I guess to just be explicit about my own strange and very minimal experience with this, since you alluded to it, uh, I created a, a creepypasta monster called Smile Dog. Uh, in like my sophomore year. Wait, of- you did what? 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 Are you saying that Michael's entire take on this story might be influenced by the fact that he glanced against like the the strange apparatus of technology and capital that has enabled the entire uh, Homestuck thing to happen? Uh, no. Well, yes, actually. Uh, so I created this like uh, uh weird uh creepypasta monster called smile dog i posted it to 4chan uh basically at the urging of a friend because i thought it was just like a silly little goof uh and then it becomes like this weird canonical creepypasta thing like i i i'm not really upset about what happened to smile dog uh but it's really weird to have built this little thing right written this little story um that was a trick Right. Like the, the whole thing about the smile dog story is that you had to share the story. It was a chain letter. Right. I took the chain mm-hmm. letter format. I put a narrative in it and then I uh, gave it like a meme image uh, and I let it go into the Internet. 
And then I don't know, three years later, uh, my my like sister in law uh has like has this boyfriend and he has some young kids uh that uh, are like at a cookout or whatever that we're going to, and the kids are like looking up creepy pasta and talking about how much they love Smile Dog, and I'm like, what the hell is this? Right. Uh, it's, were it's you the, like, did you, did you take uh, credit for it while they were there? Were you like, hey, kids? I, I did. Like, what did they They were like, no, you didn't. They thought it was, they thought that was incredible. They, I mean, if they, oh, okay. they seem to believe me. You gullible children. Yeah. Uh, but like, it's, <laughs> that's why it's there are weird. all these kids running around believing I invented Halo. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fools. <laughs> and the concept of chickens. Yep. Uh, but yeah, so like I, I, I have some like, ex- like not at all to the same degree as Homestuck and like mm-hmm. what the, the sort of like consequences of Homestuck were, but like I have some experience with this of like making a weird thing, uh, that you let loose onto the internet and then it just kind of takes on a life of its own in, in this, uh, you know, uh, in my case, like pretty good way in that, uh, unlike other creepypasta that have become really huge, I don't think anyone's murdered someone over Smile Dog yet. Oh, yeah. God, I forgot about that. Yeah, no, that was when that happened. I had this feeling of like, oh, God. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, like uh, uh, it, it, it is a strange feeling. And I think if, if we're reading this correctly, that the autoresponder um, is an attempt to kind of allegorize Hussey's feelings about creating something. And then that thing kind of due to the Internet uh, getting a little bit beyond your control Um like, I, I have some sympathy for that because there is, like, there's, it's weird and it's also kind of, like, disheartening to, like, see your artwork kind of uh, uh, moving around on its own, right? Like, this is not really, you know, Smile Dog makes me no money. Uh, and that's because I posted it anonymously on 4chan, right? I, I didn't try mm-hmm. to monetize it or anything. And that's part of, like, why it was, uh, you know, so, so able to be mimetic other than, like, the fact that I wrote it to be mimetic. Um, and... It, it, it can be very uncanny, right? Like every time I see Smile Dog, like I am pulled back to uh, the, the Michael who wrote that in two thousand eight or two thousand nine or whatever. Um, and it's sort of, I guess, just yeah. It's notable to me, even uh, historically at this point, that we have this uh, thing where Dirk could kill the autoresponder, but then doesn't, uh, and then throws it into the sprite to merge it with Equius. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about a an opposite of an OTP. <laughs> a B a BTP. Yeah, it's it's a weird move. Uh, but the thing that I was initially building toward that is a, a sort of different way of taking this, uh, is that when you say something like you know you can't judge Dirk for what the autoresponder does, uh, that requires you to kind of be literal about the story in a certain way. Uh, mm-hmm. Rather, rather than approaching it as a work of fiction, uh, where something like the autoresponder can be read uh, as a commentary on Dirk, right? Like you can absolutely judge Dirk for what the autoresponder does because the autoresponder is uh, a fragment of Dirk's personality, and sure, like it gets in in the literal text of the story, it is like a. Uh, 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 embodied in like these glasses or this computer program and it like has three years of its own kind of independent development and whatever um 
but those are still things that are like latent in Dirk as a character, right? Like it's it it intensifies the aspects of himself that are already there and that he doesn't like. Uh, and his response, rather than like maybe trying to work around them or whatever, is kind of to cordon them off and uh, uh, you know mix them with uh, some weird horse fascist. Uh, but uh, right, like that. Th this is a thing that I start noticing. Like, this happens a lot in this reading, right? This kind of move to uh, rather than apprehend some of these uh, details about characters as like uh, uh, scaffolding for fiction and sort of like uh, character commentary, right? Like reading these things as fictional characters, um, we get this turn toward almost kind of like a weird empiricism. The other place that this happens uh, is with Caliborn. Uh, because mm -hmm. uh, uh, people start talking about Caliborn here uh, as uh, someone who only has, like, one active hemisphere in his brain. And rather than taking this as, again, maybe a kind of conceit or something thematic, right, that Caliborn is a, an incomplete individual or what have you, uh, instead, we're, uh, the, the thread gets caught up in thinking through, like, what, how, how does Caliborn's body-mind apparatus work, right? What is cognition for Caliborn? How does he perceive color? How uh, is the fact that he, uh, uh, or like, if he only has one hemisphere of his brain, is it the right side of his brain? And does that explain why uh, he's so bad at uh, visual things because of the old, like, uh, uh, truisms of, like, left-right hemisphere distinctions, mm -hmm. right? Relying on all these things. So... Uh, and, and like, I remember historically as a reader sort of like watching the fandom and getting really not miffed, but like thinking like, why are you asking these questions? Like what? And, and I I know very well why, because this is a story where if you say these things uh, at some point in the future, the narrative may bend back and like take some weird detail uh, from one of these interpretations and make it critical to understanding everything that yes, Caliborn does have like problems with visual processing because he literally only has half a brain or something. Right. Um, like literally. Yes. He only had, he could literally only have half of a brain. So, uh, like, that's why this is happening, right? It's it's to, like, cash in, or not cash in, but, like, to take part in this thing that Homestuck is asking you to do, right, by its very form and structure. But also, that thing keeps the readers, or, like, uh, I, I'm not saying it keep, like, in, in a final sense, but, like, rather than thinking through, what is this story maybe trying to say about Caliborn and the type of guy he represents, it becomes about, like, the, like, <laughs> biological theory of Caliborn's mind. Right. Um, so, again, like, the, 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 the impulse here is not to approach the story as a story that's, like, trying to tell you something about the world outside the story, uh, which is how I tend to approach narratives in fiction, right? Like, uh, uh, the the story uh, is a way of getting indirectly at things that happen in the real world. Um, instead, we have this kind of like uh, uh, fan wiki orientation where everything is kind of materially real. And if we sort of think through how the, the empirical experience of these characters and their world must be, uh, then here's all the stuff that we could come up with. And some one of the thoughts that I had while I was reading for this episode and making these notes is that um, Homestuck is 
maybe written to run around like this thing that we saw in the 2000s and the early 2010s uh, all the time, which was like, you never thought about it like this, but this thing from an 80s movie that you loved when you were a kid is actually super dark if you take it literally. Hey, now, why are you making fun of college humor like that? <laughs> well, college humor is at least doing it for a joke, right? right. Uh, there's a way in which, like, the those jokes, however, right, those, like, theories of, uh, you know, how something, like, how a children's movie is actually, actually secretly dark, uh, right. those become, like, an actual interpretive mode, uh, you know, that folds right into the contemporary, like, 10 things you didn't notice about uh, Fallout 4 or whatever. Wait, what are the 10 things I didn't notice? No, I need, no, I need to click on that. What? Oh, it's, uh, I, I, uh, did you know that there's a skeleton in a room and it's really sad? Uh-oh, he's yeah. your dad. <laughs> but you, you know what I mean, like the... I do, I do. Just the, the, this kind of like weird impulse of uh, taking a thing and then like sort of working against uh, generic constraint. Actually, this is a, this is a way of like maybe condensing down what I'm trying to get at here. Um, uh, one of the things you learn when you study like fiction in the history of fiction uh, and you look at, say, the, the works of narratology, which are uh, uh, literary theorists who specifically look at like. Uh, they're kind of formalists uh, or sort of sort of related to like uh, semiotics and things. Um, but we'll look at like how does a the, the sort of narrative as a, a little textual machine um, elicit certain responses? How does it build in narrative mechanisms to get those responses? And then, uh, you know, how do people tend to react to them or whatever? But one of the first kind of moves uh, that you'll you'll see in this sort of analysis is something like genre, right? Because genre is a thing that imposes constraint. Like, am I supposed to take this work as primarily comedic or primarily like horrific or romantic, something like that? Um, the genre like closes off or like doesn't really close off. It doesn't make impossible certain modes of interpretation, but it does delimit in the sense that it is telling you uh, if you want to read this thing, like, here are some of the clues, right? I am teaching you to read me by uh, being very clear about what my genre is. So uh, this is a fun little story that you probably shouldn't read uh, uh, too much into the details to find, like, the dark truth of it or something like that. And Homestuck doesn't really have this, right? Homestuck is, in fact, defined by the fact that it is constantly uh, swerving in and out of d distinct generic modes. Uh, and so you get, like, habits of reading uh, that seem very normal compared uh, uh, or sort of like uh, seem very apposite, right, appropriate to, uh, like, characterological thinking and about, like, feelings times with these teens, Right. Like if we're, if we're going to take these characters sort of seriously and, and sort of like uh, contemplate their emotions and their emotional lives and their emotional arcs, there's a particular approach or a language of criticism um, or like a, a language of response. Right. That is going to come out of that. And uh, that's all well and good. But then the comic is filled with like a million other things. And you start seeing that generic mode like slip out into like. Here's a one-off joke that gets made in a walk-around in Act 3, and I'm going to pick up on that, right, this thing that is clearly marked as a joke, and, like, fold that into my serious characterological analysis. And it's mm -hmm. because Homestuck is corrosive to the boundaries between uh, the serious and the unserious in that way. Yeah, because there's no... 
there's no form and content distinction. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the internet. Yep. Yep. Um, this also is the moment in the reading, uh, and I think this is sort of related, where the something awful thread, uh, in particular becomes aware of, um, like, they don't use these terms just yet, but, uh, well, they, they, fan theories is a term that, that the, uh, thread has obviously Mm. this is a thing that's been talked about forever uh but the term that they don't have is headcanon oh which is is this a thing that you're familiar with yeah okay uh uh, a thing is not true in the text but i make a decision and make it true in my little uh bean noodle in my head right much like uh let me see here uh it's headcanon to me that smile dog is a corgi Okay. <laughs> I'll say here, word of God, canonically, Smile Dog is not a dog. That's in the text of the story, and the fact that so many people draw it as a dog shows you how poorly people read. Uh, anyway. Uh, look, I don't... Uh, I think you need to calm down about this. <laughs> nope, I nope. Think that, I think you're getting a little too... Uh, you know. Uh, wow, 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 wow. Doodly, doodly, do. You're getting a little bit too creative here. <laughs> The fans own it. Yeah. Uh, get on board the dream bubbles. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> uh, but so, uh, uh, right. So uh, Smile Dog is a corgi. That can be your headcanon, right? The thing that you as a reader kind of uh, like a, a sort of very particular, peculiar, individualized reading um, mm-hmm. that you come up with and is like true and valuable to you as a reader for whatever reason. And that's fine. Um, the Something Awful thread, I think, is like talked about headcanons, but it's not a term that they're using. Uh, because I think it is, uh, it's worth pointing this out because, uh, the discussion in the thread turns toward, uh, this idea that Roxy is trans. Um, and they don't just, the, the something awful thread is like, as you might imagine, like not hot on this idea, right? They, they roundly mock the idea that, uh, there are people out there who are reading this, who are like headcanoning these characters as trans. Um, why, why do people think that? Be- like what I- do they point to to make it head canonical well i don't really know because uh oh, I see. many of these like many of these things are getting quoted in the thread and the blogs themselves no longer exist right 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 got it got it, got it. okay right uh and some sort of issue with the pooter yes yeah, some sort of some sort of like infrastructural problem here um i know that like in roxy's case uh some of it has to do with like uh the the way that her kind of deal right this kind of like cool girl deal uh is read as a uneasy relationship with traditional femininity um hmm. so uh i i know that that's there but uh you know some of these people who are like like they're not being quoted in good faith right like in the right, something right, awful thread uh they're just here to sort of like laugh at this um but I think that's pretty fascinating because I do. I also kind of ran into a similar understanding of of Roxy in this thing. But I actually read Roxy as a uh, as like almost like a Gone Girl, like that monologue in Gone Girl about being the cool girl mm-hmm. and about how much that sucks. Yeah, to have to be the cool girl. That mm-hmm. that's really, especially the whole thing about like uh, I forget who says it, but they were like, "You were more fun." Oh, it might have been Jane. Like you were more fun when you were drinking. Yes, and she's like, "I had a problem." Mm-hmm. Uh, and that to me, that's very 
like, you know, the monologue from Gone Girl. But anyway, sorry. Sorry to detract from the point. The people <laughs> in the thread are being rude about it. Right. Uh, the, the people in the Something Awful thread are going to laugh about this. Um, but it also, like, aims right at uh, uh, this other, not, not an issue or a problem, but, like, one of these distinguishing features of Homestuck, uh, which is, like... Thinking, like, extrapolating from the text in sort of, like, unexpected ways becomes a valuable uh, activity in and of itself to the readership. Uh, maybe because some of that stuff gets folded back into to the canonical thing, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Like, maybe we we get uh, a trans Roxy in the future at some point. Um, but uh, in some ways, uh, it reads as I mean, these are also i think largely younger people who are casting about like uh, who maybe belong to some of these identity categories and they're sort of casting about like looking for that representation like it just it, it makes sense it's like oh, okay you're like you know a, a person kind of in this position and like you uh are forming these kind of close identificatory bonds with with the object or with these characters and it's fun to think like what if this character were a little more like me that kind of compensatory ma imagination, which is so critical to Homestuck, uh, because early on, like at the beginning of Homestuck, it was all stuff like, oh, man, I wonder what the game rules are going to be. Uh, and let's see if it turns out that I'm right. Oh, I wonder if the kids are going to have like elemental alignments. Uh, here's what I think, like, uh, you know, John is, is going to be this element. Rose will be this one and so on. Um, all of these kind of really big, broad things at the beginning. Uh, and suddenly here in Act 6... We're in this strange position of uh, very particular and idiosyncratic and like individualized speculation. Um, and I don't know if that has to do with the fact that we just like have had so many thousands of pages of comic. Like the narrative has progressed to a point where we can't really, uh, you know, speculate or theorize about the big broad movements. Um, but also the comic has become so much about these characters and these kind of micro movements uh, that, uh, what else are you going to talk about? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. And it's also like been mined for content, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I'm assuming at this point there are like dominant strains of interpretation. There's like BNFs, you know, mm -hmm. there's like all this shenaniganery mm -hmm. going on. And, uh, and yeah, so maybe like the, what, you know, the, the place where you can come in and like talk about stuff and not be pilloried, right. Yeah. For, for going against the grain might be like, Hey, what if, what if, what if Dave's trans mask? Right. Um, please don't be mean to me. Yeah. I, I will say, I think some of the big movement stuff, uh, some of that speculation and theorizing is happening with like class spec analysis, uh, which is really starting to like lock together. And it's something that actually comes up with uh, in regards to Dirk in the thread as well, um, specifically mm. Dirk and Jake, uh, mm. where uh, uh, this is another way that people approach like the autoresponder Dirk thing, uh, because we are told that the prince is a destroyer class uh, and. Uh -huh. And Dirk is a prince of heart, which means that he destroys heart uh, in some way or other, right? Um, or destroys with heart, right? This is the thing about these classes is that there's always like one way to read them and then there's a way to read them in the opposite way. Um, 
Uh, and people are like, oh, so this is like why Dirk is uh, constantly producing sort of like copies of himself or shards, right? Uh, he calls them splinters in the text. So this is, uh, you know, the, the autoresponder is one of them. Uh, the fact that his dream self was awake uh, with him the entire, like he never had a moment where his dream self woke up. He was always simultaneously like living his life on Earth and awake on Purpo. Um, and then we have Jake who has like, because of his hope powers, uh, is explained to us can generate this kind of like hologram ghost of Dirk in his in his mind, uh, and then uh, through some weird confluence of like Jake's powers and Dirk's latent powers, uh, that thing becomes real in a dream bubble at one point very briefly. Uh, and so class spec analysis uh, will approach this and be like, well, you know, here's here's what's happening is like Dirk like subdivides himself. That doesn't like really zing with me at this point because I didn't need the class spec to tell me that that's what's happening. That's what's happening at the level of the story. And the the thread ends up talking about like, oh, well, that's interesting because the only, the other person who had a heart aspect was uh, Nepeta. And what did Nepeta do? She did a lot of role playing. Again, this is this is interesting, right? But. I don't know what the connection between Nepeta and Dirk gets you. You can make, make the additional move, right, that we have Dirk the author figure and Nepeta this fandom figure, and so they're both connected by Hart. Okay, what next? Uh, because ultimately, Hart is a thing that Homestuck has made up, and it will mean whatever Homestuck wants it to. Right. I, you know, we, we've talked about this a few times, and it's always worth repeating that uh, you can make a model of anything, and you can apply a model of anything to any object, right? Like th this is ultimately, we were talking about semiotics earlier. It was ultimately the uh, curse and benefit of semiotics, right? Mm -hmm. That like the linkage between signifiers and signifieds is arbitrary. Uh, I can point, I can point at, I don't know, um, say Michael. Mm -hmm. And I can say cowboy Michael. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing you can do to stop me. <laughs> Right, or you can like, I mean, you know the classic example, right? You like point at a tree and you say coffee cup. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we all just start pointing at the tree and saying coffee cup and we say coffee cup enough, then uh, what we call a tree just becomes a coffee cup, right? Or it mm -hmm. becomes named coffee cup. There, There's no linkage between signifier and signified. It is arbitrary and, and ambivalent quite mm -hmm. often. Um, there's no necessary link um, uh, between any kind of uh, linguistic enunciation about something and its... And a thing in the world, right? Mm -hmm. A really good... Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, a really good in-text example for Homestuck of this uh, is that Rose and Vriska are both light players, right? Light is their aspect. Um, and uh, for Rose, this ends up being like she's the seer of light. Uh, and the way, way light works for her, as she explains it, is about sort of see, like knowing stuff about the game or about the, the sort of like uh, story ahead of them and being able to spot things and uh, uh, sort of guide or direct, right? Um, and when Vriska is introduced as this light player, we suddenly also get this reading uh, that comes sort of out of the comic and also comes up from the fandom where light is just read as luck, right? Like, like Vriska's obsession with luck, which is what we have textually, gets retroactively made into an expression of her light aspect because light uh, is taken to also somehow encompass luck or fortune, mm -hmm. right? Um, so 
there you go, right? Like, to anyone who has not read Homestuck, there is no link between the concepts of light and luck, right? Right. Right, because it's ultimately an arbitrary system that you've developed. Now, it's one that the uh, that the comic gives you a bunch of kind of tools to build, right? And it's it's obviously built into the text um, in the sense that, like, characters have these things and they are talking about them, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't think it's, like, inappropriate to do it. Um, but, you know, in the same way, you know, we could do our uh, gla- glanalysis, which mm-hmm. is all about uh, where glasses show up and frames in which we look through panes of glass at other things. Mm-hmm. Um, you could create an entire universe of analysis that only understands Homestuck through that. Ah, yes, of course. Well, you see, we see Hussey in this frame through a pane of cracked glass, meaning that that is the compromised, undergirded position. Mm-hmm. Meaning that they are becoming... Uh, you know, a, a critical formative point of the comic and are no longer a protagonal character, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just something to make up. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could do it, right? Mm-hmm. I, you know, and this is all models of reading. All models of interpretation are ultimately arbitrary. Um, and for the most part, you can create strong evidence for any model that you want. This is both how good old-fashioned literary analysis works, and it's also how conspiracy theories work. Um, mm-hmm. You can create um, strong evidence for basically anything on the planet because of the way that um, kind of, you know, we, we can generate pattern. Um, mm-hmm. You know, humans are pretty good at pattern. Uh, and so then, like, you know, as I've said many times before, but I do think it's worth bringing up every couple episodes or, or, or uh, you know, every couple part episodes, I guess I should say, uh, is that you then have to ask yourself, well, what does it get you, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what what is the thing? And currently, like, uh, I'm sure, you know, for people at the time who were doing this, and certainly people now, I think probably classics give you something, Um uh, you know, I see people in the Discord uh, kind of talking about like what it enables them to do with the text and ways of understanding the text, but I, I just, I don't see it. I, and maybe it's because you know we've got thousands of pages to go. But I, I truly do not, on a fundamental level, see what class specs give you that the comic does not already give you. Mm-hmm. Meaning that I don't learn anything more about Riska now, or, or you know, learn anything more about Rose. Like I, I am not interpreting or understanding Rose's actions by thinking about, well, how does luck run into that? Um, now, I will say this: I think that there might have been a crucial. I, I think that class spec analysis has transformed a few times, especially mm-hmm. based on what you've told me about what you've re- read at the time and what you're talking about in this very partisode. Versus where it is now, right? Kind of after the end of, of Homestuck or canonical Homestuck, whatever it mm-hmm. is. Uh, and and the difference there being is that class spec analysis at the time, based on what you're saying, is actually a pretty useful predictive tool in the sense that it gives you a whole system for making calls about what could happen in the comic. Mm-hmm. And, and we have looked, since the very beginning of the show... We have seen people doing that exact thing. You know, you look at the corpus as it is, right? You see, you look at the text as it exists, and then you look at the information and pattern that's given to you, and then you make calls about what's going to occur. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it at this point in the comic, Act 6, wherever we are in it, right? Page 4,000-ish or somewhere in there. Where, where are we at? No, 5,000. 5,000, yeah. Mid-5,000s, right? Uh, at this point, I could think, oh, yeah, like class specs might be really helpful in that it kind of formalizes and gives you a big structuralism, mm-hmm. right? 
for thinking about where this thing's going to go. So I could see it totally being useful in terms of like the big model mm-hmm. to do something with. Mm-hmm. But the the but the beauty and terror of models is they live on beyond their initial use case, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, right? Like some like, sort of computer program or a like mimetic some sort image? Of computer program, or, or even like real world kind of theorizations, right? You know, so something like. Um, uh, historically, Manichaeism, mm-hmm. right, being a very much a political program that emerges at its time in a religious and political context, uh, it, that then gets like washed into uh, Christianity wholesale with uh, Saint Augustine, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like that—that's a weird, uh, you know. I don't think classics are doing that, right? But that's a, that is a, an example of a way of interpreting the world and the things in front of you that can that lives on past its initial uh, development and then gets kind of transformed into some other thing, right? Mm-hmm. And in our Discord, right, we've literally had people talk about like, well, you know, class specs or whatever or, or whatever for me, but I do think it's a uni- useful heuristic for interpreting other texts in the world. Mm-hmm. Right? We've literally had people say that, of like, oh, it's interesting to read other stories uh, with these in mind, right? Like, that to me is like, that's the model that liberated Mm-hmm. Right. And and going on and doing its own thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's a model that's liberated from a context that's like very specific to the text in front of you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, that's all to say, you know, I, I, I think that there's a, a fascinating kind of afterlife to class specs, uh, especially because, you know, in terms of like in the year 2022, how are people talking about Homestuck mm-hmm. in terms of like big, big systemic analysis? There is close reading strategies, which is like all the other podcasts, you know, all the way at the beginning of of this show that you kind of enumerated. Those seem mostly to be just like, you know, close reading analysis, reading the comic, reading some of it out loud, talking about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's these big structural models of which I think class specs is the is it's the one that remains dominant. You know, Mm -hmm. it's the I don't see other people bringing up other big forms Mm -hmm. in, in those terms. So. There's something really interesting to me about its uh, its development as a tool during the live production of the thing, and its afterlife beyond that as a as a mode of reading. In the same way that uh, new criticism is a mode of reading with an afterlife, or that semiotic structuralism is a mode of reading with an afterlife. Right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, it it exists for a much smaller number of people. Maybe theoretically, I guess. But it has the same kind of valence to it of like, or psychoanalysis even, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's a thing that emerges at a particular time and place and has a long afterlife that has worked its tendrils into a lot of other things. And so, yeah, um, that's that's not to say it's good or bad or whatever, right? But but I think you have to like hold all of that in your head at one time when thinking about how useful is it going forward uh, as as a thing, but. Um, I don't know why the. I mean, I do kind of know why this keeps coming up on the show, but it is fascinating every time it does. Well, uh, it, to your point that classpect analysis has changed, this is also something right. to mention here because uh, in the something awful thread, it's during this reading that I get the first mention of um, one of the largest and sort of most notorious classpect theories that comes out of the fandom and becomes a thing like. If you were in the fandom at this time, like you could mention this and people would like know what you were talking about, mm-hmm. uh, which is, of course, uh, Blade Kind Eyewear's theory of class spec inversion. Um, 
Uh, Bladekind Eyewear is a uh, theorist on Tumblr. They are uh, uh, sort of, I don't know if they're like, actually like friends, but they're they, they coming at it in the way that I did. They seemed like part of the same circle as like uh, a dog's body who called the, the um, uh, Roxy and Dirk being in the future twist. Mm, okay. Um, so Blade, Blade Kind Eyewear comes up with this idea that classbacks, uh, one, are like they exist in their real in the story, right? Which is like, of course, yeah, that's happening. Um, but then uh, uh, they get this idea that the classbacks can be arranged in like a circle so that there are like uh, oppositional pairings. And this is like to some degree true, right? I, I think it's a Calliope who gives us, um, if if she hasn't already, uh, is maybe at some point in the future going to give us some sort of sense of like that uh, uh, certain of these, certain aspects are like uh, dualist pairs, right? Um, so you can like arrange them in a circle. And so uh, uh, Blakekind Eyewear's theory is that if a uh, character of one classbect is pushed in a, a to like extremes of emotion or something their classbect will invert and they will become the opposite thing uh and part of the argument here is um you remember when rose went grimdark i do okay that's classbect inversion right that's uh -oh. that's right like because roses rose is the seer of light and then she goes dark mm. um and so uh, Blade Kind Eyewear keeps uh, coming up with all of these theories about like who is going to invert, right? Uh, uh, how, and then like, well, if like Jane inverts to whatever, then this might be what happens. And if this person inverts to this, then this might be what they can do. Uh, and it's exactly what you're talking about is this kind of uh, mechanism for uh, structuring your speculation and trying to call shots about the future. Um, but mm -hmm. then it takes this weird turn where it assumes a thing that the story hasn't really confirmed or uh, it takes like roses going grimdark which isn't even talked about in terms of of her classbect really um makes an assumption about what that is and then just like soldiers forth with that assumption uh into every uh kind of opportunity that it can and this is like why why it becomes sort of infamous because until sort of the end uh blade kind eyewear is holding out hope for classbect inversion to be confirmed as canonical uh and in fact like i've you know found in my research have found like uh uh like uh, Tumblr posts uh, like reblogged from uh, uh, Hussey's former girlfriend at this time. Uh, like she was getting asked, uh, she was getting Tumblr asks from Blade Kind Eyewear about Classbeck inversion, and her response is something like, "Classbeck inversion is not real. Please stop asking us about it." Hmm. Right. Um. And so, uh, uh, again, there, there's all of these like at first glance, like whatever, like reading strategies, but there's something about like the structure of the internet and online communication that means that they like sort of spiral out of control in ways that uh, become really just notable and, and strange, right? Like this person becomes known primarily for their big unified Homestuck theory that doesn't really hold together, but like by damn, they planted their flag. Right. Well, it not only doesn't hold together, but it is expl explicitly and expressly not supported by the text. Right. Right. Like, like so the 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 pe and wherever you hold that right is is your own business, right? But, um, you know, it's it's 
if if the if the person who is making the thing tells you your mode of apprehending the thing is incorrect to the thing, that doesn't say you're wrong. That doesn't mean you're wrong. But that does mean that you have to uh, temper the ways that you make your argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but because ultimately, right, it's just about making a model. Again, mm-hmm. you can make a model out of anything. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the the horror of models <laughs> is that. You can use any piece of information, any, or you need a set of information, but any set of information, you can make it say anything you want to. Mm-hmm. Nothing can stop you. Uh, and so then you have to create, like, you know, essentially an ethics, right? Mm-hmm. Not ethics in terms of, like, what's good and bad, but kind of a set of protocols, right? Right. Like, how does one then think through the model in relationship to the facts in front of you? Uh, and if your response to that is that it does not matter what anyone else says, right? Well, I don't know how good your model is mm-hmm. uh, in terms of like its effectiveness to speaking to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to have its own politics in, in terms of like the politics of the model is then proving that the model is real, not that the model tells you something uh, helpful or unique or powerful about the, the work you're engaging with. Right. Um, and maybe the reason I like bring this up pretty consistently uh, and think about this is that I, you know, I'm writing a book chapter and have been very slowly working on a book chapter about ancient aliens conspiracies mm-hmm. um, for like months now. And I've read all of these books about ancient aliens, and this is exactly how they all work. Mm-hmm. Like, especially in the 60s and 70s, really the 70s, uh, is like, here's all the facts on the ground. If you connect them in such a way, you can very cleanly and clearly come to the conclusion that early human beings were influenced by. Um, uh, you know, uh, ancient astronauts who mm-hmm. came here originally. If you look at any of that data outside of that system, none of that, it doesn't mean that, right? It does not create that conclusion. But mm-hmm. internally, you know, as a system that resonates with itself, it's a very compelling argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you just truly have to hermetically seal off the rest of the universe <laughs> in order to make it work, right? And I, I guess, you know, for, for this kind of Inversion analysis, what you're saying is you just have to be like, all right, uh, what that person, the, a person who is connected to the creation of this thing and has a little bit of insider knowledge about it, or maybe a lot of insider knowledge, they just don't, they're wrong. They don't know mm-hmm. what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the text is bigger than them. It's almost like some sort of robot uh, <laughs> who has a mind of its own, who could do something uh, that you can't control. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. It like also that. becomes very annoying because it wants you to touch its muscles. I don't know where I would get that idea, but. <laughs> Ad break, ad break, ad break time. Would you like to play a game? (laughs) Would you like to break an ad? Um, Would you like to listen to an ad? (laughs) Uh, You're listening to Homestuck Made This World, which is part of the Range Touch network of podcasts. And Homestuck Made This World is not the only show that we do. Uh, Cameron and I have a couple of other shows uh, where we talk through things in kind of a similar manner. Uh, One of those things is just King Things, uh, where we do kind of the... historical homestuck maneuver but with the novels of stephen king which is uh, i mean if, if you are listening to this episode and we probably haven't said it yet by the time that uh you're listening to this but uh in the in the wizard's quarter of the episode we're going to be talking a bit about like the history of genre fiction and how those things change uh that's actually a conversation we have pretty frequently over on just king things as stephen king like enters the uh megastar realm of publishing and warps the entire field around him um so you should check that out if you haven't yet uh we also have too much future where we play through and talk about the fallout franchise uh 
We also have Game Study Study Buddies, where we talk through works of academic game studies and uh, try to make them, you know, useful or interesting or accessible to people who uh, maybe aren't uh, academically grounded in the field and want to know a little bit more about that. And these are all things we tend to bring to bear here. All of this stuff uh, happens because of listener support. Uh, we are, are you know, sort of uh, uh, self-funded, self-advertising. We don't really advertise any other places. Uh, and we really like it when we get money for the work that we do. You know, I'm out here reading all of these books. Uh, Cameron reads other things uh, for non-Homestuck shows, but also he has to read Homestuck. Uh, anyway. Yeah, you're putting in like a straight up like a 40-hour work week on this show. <laughs> it's it's pretty. It's <laughs> like pretty. Just uh, on the show by itself. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's really wild. hard reading all of the things that I read um, and all of the notes that I make and just all of this. Uh, but what really makes it worth it at the end of the day is knowing that uh, folks like hearing this uh, and that they are supporting my work uh, uh, in, in this endeavor through Patreon, patreon.com slash range touch, uh, where you can kick us just, you know, even a couple bucks a month can uh, really help. Um, but if you go a little bit higher, we have various support tiers where you get bonus content, bonus episodes. Uh, so uh, for just King things, this is often me and Cameron talking about a Stephen King adaptation, but for the Homestuck Made This World bonus episodes, uh, this is about like Homestuck intertexts. It can be books or films or a fan adventure in one case. Uh, closest to when you're hearing this, uh, our next bonus episode will be or will have been, I don't remember what our release date is for this part episode, um, the first 10 episodes of Lost. Um, which I have started, uh, and boy, am I going to have some things to say about the first 10 episodes of Lost when we get there. Uh, but yeah, so that, that's what you get uh, if you support us on Patreon. There's also like a monthly podcast that Cameron does with Danny. Um, and, uh, at some point we're going to be doing a poll for listeners who, to gauge interest in what our show is going, like what our show is after this one, after Homestuck Made This World ends, which will, you know, end, uh, probably in the new year. Uh, what are we going to do next? What's kind of going to be the, the next on the docket for us to work through? Uh, we don't know what that is and we're probably at some point going to put up a Patreon poll to see what folks there are interested in so if you want your voice heard there head on over to patreon.com slash range touch and uh, support us uh, if you're already doing that thank you so much that's fantastic uh, other things that you can do to help out if you uh, want to you can tell your friends about these shows uh, ones that you think that they might be interested in encourage them to listen to it uh, and you can also encourage uh, total strangers to listen to us by leaving us reviews on your podcast platform of choice and if you leave a review that is both five stars and funny uh, Cameron will maybe read it on air like now whoa we're gonna do it uh there is a it's a long review from rim mariam but uh i'm not gonna so i'm not gonna read the whole thing but it is five stars i've changed a lot throughout the years but nevertheless i will continue drawing my troll sona thinking about myself through the lenses of my planet and class spec and writing fan works in the second person thanks homestuck a little sideways face what's that little like uh like slash mouth grin. What's that called? I don't Un know. Un unsure face here. Let me, I'll paste it for you. Yeah. What's this emoji called? What's that? I I don't know. That's yeah. It's like, like, nah, yeah, I uh, guess face. Uh, and, uh, they, uh, thank us for, uh, getting them interested in the comic again. You're welcome. Yeah. 
right, I'm going to read this to you because this is funny to me. This is from Tiny Subversions. <laughs> Extremely convenient. I was listening to this podcast at one point. I thought, wow, this is really interesting line of thinking the hosts are examining. Then Cameron says, this relates to the work of Darius Kazemi in the following ways. and explains the connection. Extremely convenient. Five stars. <laughs> one thing I could say for sure. If you are Michel Foucault or Jacques Lacan, you should definitely give the show a listen. Anyone who's dead should listen to the show. I'm going to mm-hmm. expand that. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Tiny Subray, if you get that joke, you'll laugh heartily at that. But yeah, leave us five stars. Leave a little funny one. Maybe I'll read it on the show. Yeah. Uh, so thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you for supporting yeah. if you already do. And uh, well, I guess back to the show. Mm-hmm. Hey, do you think by this point uh, we we have talked about Wizardy Herbert when you when you put this into the show? Probably not. Okay. Wizardy Why? Herbert coming up. Wizardy Herbert coming up. Coming right up. <laughs> <laughs> Wizardy Herbert is my DJ name. Yep. Same. Uh, speaking of which, I guess we can we can swerve away from that to just uh, mention these all of these trolls coming back and being thrown into Colonel Sprites by Gamzee. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, this is this is gesturing back to what I said last time where Hussey explains uh, to Caliborn, right? Gamzee, Gamzee's just going to do things and it's not going to make any sense, but it's like maybe funny. Mm hmm. Uh, and like that's sort of how this reads, right? Like, uh, uh, hey, remember like, when he was the most important character in this comic? Well, he still is. <laughs> I know. Or, or when we were told that he yeah. was. <laughs> but remember who was sitting in his lap? Oh my god! Yep. Oh my god! I don't remember who it is, but I bet I can uh, take a guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was uh, the special gremlin. Mm-hmm, the special gremlin. Uh, it was the imp who gets pr- voted uh, prom king in prom stuck. <laughs> right. right. Uh, <laughs> oh, that little guy. Good little uh, guy. Yeah. So uh, uh, these weird like uh, troll amalgamations are there. I mean, they I think that they are funny uh, in the sense that I have some historical context to them. For instance, like uh, aerosol sprite being a combination of Aridin and Sullux. Uh, is this sort of weird uh, roundabout reference to the fact that Aridin and Sullux were an extremely popular uh, slash pairing in in the fandom, huh. and that fa- like the the pairing was called Aerosol. Uh, and it I I I've said we've said on like the Prom Stuck episode, and I think we've said versions of this on this show before. Uh, that we we don't really have like the the shipping reflex. I don't look at uh, fictional no. characters and necessarily start thinking about like what they might be like in a in a relationship together. I just you know I I take what the story will give me rather than speculate in that way. Mm-hmm. That said, um, anytime anyone mentions a ship to me, very often I understand the logic. So like. Aerosol, like, I get it. Like, I understand why people ship that, because these are two, like, miserable guys. <laughs> um, and, and I understand, like, the, the attraction there is, like, them, despite their kind of, like, horrible exteriors coming to realize that uh, they have feelings for one another, uh, and sort of, like, the slow shift of, like, their enmity into, uh, you know, whatever romance. Like... I get that. And then it's very funny to me that how this then shows up in the comic is, yeah, I combine those two characters together and they hate their life entirely. They are they are unhappy about being uh, about existing 
but they are not like Tavris Sprite, like so opposed to to the idea that they explode themselves. Oh, very good. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, the thing with Fafetta Sprite, uh, that's mm, like whatever. Uh, Fafetta Sprite never talks. The joke of Fafetta Sprite is that whenever she like is called upon to react to something, she just has like a, a, a little smiley that she does. Uh, but also Roxy is constantly talking about how much Fafetta Sprite talks. It's just like, oh, mm-hmm. me and Fafetta Sprite, we talk for hours. Uh, she's such a good conversational partner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this feels, uh, again, a, not, not like full on reader, reader hostile, but a little bit of a, um, uh, uh, you know, kicking kicking dust up into the reader's face from Hussey, uh, because one of the fan responses to both Nepeta and Fafari is that they are characters who don't do a lot and don't say a lot, and like there are people who like these characters who feel like they are underserved. Right. Right. In fact, Mina has been uh, uh, described by Hussey as an apology to all of the the Pisces for Fafari. <laughs> Right. For this character who just like didn't do anything and then disappeared. So mm-hmm. uh, there's a, a, a little joke in Fafetta Sprite taking these two kind of supporting characters and then making them even more supporting and making them talk even less. <laughs> but also it's the provocation of, of what you're talking about. Right. In the same way that the relationships are right, because it's off screen. Mm-hmm. You get permission to go fill that in yourself. Right. Um, the other thing that this uh, seems to recuperate, I think, uh, is a, a little bit, in a very oblique and indirect way, the fan, the, the segment of the fandom that really loves body horror, which I haven't talked a lot about mm. up until this point. Are there, are there people out there banging the drum for body horror? In Homestuck, yes. Okay. Uh, so there's an entire AU called Heinous Stuck. Uh, I'm, <laughs> what? Yes, yes. Um, I'm not going to like to play a game. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> I'm not going to like, uh, put any of this stuff on like the Tumblr just because like, I, I've read like people responding to it in very distressed ways. Like I'm a horror fan, so I'm sort of fine with it. I think that, uh, you know, it's whatever. Um, but the entire idea behind heinous stuck, for instance, is like, it takes place in this world where the kids, when they turn 13, undergo this process called transmutation, which is like, uh, uh, basically they become like horrible body horror monsters and John's the last one of his friends to do it. And so like uh, Dave is like this horrible, like mutilated crow monster and like they, they all kind of become uh, versions of their sprites. Uh, Rose has like this giant, like slit mouthed cat grin and she has all these bloody tentacles and like, um, you know, it, it can be very disturbing, right? It's, it's very, uh, like when I say body horror, I mean like body horror. It starts out mm-hmm. as these sprite edits, uh, becomes its own little fan adventure that never gets completed. But like, it has like, like, you know, it's one of those little, little AUs that has its own like mini fandom within the larger Homestuck fandom. I'm clicking through and it's wild looking. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Why would you make this? I mean, shout out to them for doing it. It's given me a lot of joy. I this yeah. is quite funny, but uh I mean and and not just like haha funny, but like this is wild that someone would make this. So uh, but yeah. yeah, this is pretty uh it's like the uh the 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 hot topic horror fan. Uh-huh. Like ification of, uh-huh. of Homestuck. And I don't really mean that in a dismissive way, but it has that kind of aesthetic and like I don't know, vibe to it. 
Yes, it really, really does. Uh, it's that precise thing. And actually, over the past couple uh, uh, episodes, as I've been like looking at the Tumblr Explorer, I've noticed an uptick in uh, the body horror stuff. There are other body horror mm. AUs, right? Um, currently in, in the Tumblr uh, image posts that I've been combing through, uh, like there are so many uh, Homestuck horror updates or not updates but like sprite oh. edits where it's like here's my au where everyone's like a a, a lovecraft monster or whatever <laughs> where so, everyone's a hellraiser of some sort yes that sort of thing uh and so uh to me these troll sprites always felt like hussy seeing that right like the that people uh that there is like a tendency or like a uh uh, there, there are people in the audience who are into body horror. Uh, the sprites end up feeling, and I think, you know, this happens textually through uh, uh, Jade, right? Getting mixed with Beck and becoming like a dog person. Um, the sprites become this way of like uh, routing body horror possibilities into canon. Uh, and Hussey, I think, seems to see that and then like makes it more of like you know, less. There's still, you know, like implicit body horror especially in like for instance the Tavros Friska situation uh but it's not as like straight up horror horror right not like blood and guts gore fiend kind of stuff like you see with heinous stuck uh, but it still seems to be a kind of like echo or response to to that impulse in the reader base hmm. um right it's a way of taking like i i know that this is something that people are doing uh here's like a little version of that and i made it a fun fun little joke maybe um mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, it's just it's just also a fun little joke on its own to <laughs> have have these characters and force them to be one character and also loathe themselves. Um, let's see. Welcome to Homestuck. Welcome to Homestuck. Uh, we can talk about Wizardy Herbert, but before we jump into that, um, uh, do you, like we do you want to talk about the Condes and how uh we we get her talking now uh because when when dad yeah. is imprisoned on Purpo he had like the 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 Purpites like make him remake his social media network which was called Serious Business which was like <laughs> yeah. just Twitter but only for uh like fedora wearing businessmen like dad um, and so they remake that and all of the, all of the perpites are like yelling about their fashion emergencies, right? Someone sat on their, on their, uh, uh stovepipe hat and crumpled it. <laughs> I love, uh, I love that dad's down there is like a denizen <laughs> who like needs to be controlled. Yes. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, wouldn't have thought this, that like dad's like number three favorite character. I don't know who, I don't know who number two are, number one and two are, but I know that dad is like an easy number three. Yeah, dad's very He's good. good. He just shows up and does stuff. Mm -hmm. he'll, he'll fight, you know, he'll get murdered. Yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> uh, um, the But yeah, I don't, uh, I do like that social media thing. The panel where uh, the contest shows up and it's like, everyone is like, bows, 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 Right, bows. right. That's so she's funny. talking on the, on the social media network, which is how we like hear, like, quote unquote, hear her voice. And yeah, everyone like starts role playing, bowing to her. <laughs> Yeah, that's very funny to me. But uh, the I don't know what's up with her. What is her voice meant to be? I so, guess is my big mm -hmm. question mark. So the 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 fandom read is that uh, she is a black woman, right? That she's like oh. uh, in the thread specifically. She is compared. There's like, oh, I hear her as Azalea Banks or I hear her as Nicki Minaj. That's fascinating. I mean, I will say I thought the way that I read it. Mm -hmm. Not having any of that context. The way I read it was like, oh, a, 
uh, a white person doing black voice on Twitter. I, you know, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. I think people are a lot better about not doing that anymore. But that was like a fun, th- big fun thing to do. I'm putting some big question marks, but like that was a thing that people were comfortable doing uh-huh. uh, uh, in this era. I wouldn't actually say it was 2012. I would say it was a little bit earlier than that. But like writing the, I mean, quite a bit earlier. I, I'm thinking about people who I know were not. I I don't know if they were exactly white, but I know they weren't black. Uh, but you know, writing live journal posts in that kind of voice, writing Tumblr posts in that kind of voice, and and it happened on Twitter too, but mm-hmm. um, in a slightly different mode. That's what I thought it was. I thought it was like, a, you know, like a, an almost uh, like a Malibu's Most Wanted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know uh, what I mean? Yes. <laughs> for, for lack of a better <laughs> explanatory <laughs> phrase, but that's interesting. That's being taken kind of like straight up as a. She is a black woman. Right. And this has sort of like a uh, uh, weird backward effects for uh, Mina, who when she showed up, like one of the mm. conversations that happened in the f- thread pretty frequently is people trying to figure out what the hell Mina's voice is because the Condes and Mina have, you know, basically very similar voices. Well, that does kind of make sense to me because I do think Mina is like a Krayshawn. Mm, yeah. So like in, in the thread, people are like, what is what is Mina's voice? I can't figure it out. And three things that come up uh, that I list just because they are they are very, like, very different inflections of this character. Uh, someone says she's Cockney. Someone says she's South African. What? Yeah. Oh, and, she could. She could be. Right. I yeah. get that. I get. OK. I, yeah. OK. Right. 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 And that actually kind of uh, runs into everything else, because instead of being high English, you know, whatever, she's now low class English. Right. And then someone else so says uh, she reads as Jamaican to them. Uh, I, I don't. Yeah. I, I don't I don't think that one is accurate. Yeah. I do. I get the Cockney one. And that makes sense. And also because. Text-wise, uh, you know, if you're trying to write in dialect, and you, I mean Hussey. Mm-hmm. Hussey's writing, trying to write in dialect, and I'm putting some big quotation marks around that. Things that would read as, uh, like, A-A-V-E, and things that would read as, like, Cockney working-class Englishisms, which is also, uh, it's not A-A-V-E, right? But definitely uh, downstream from the Caribbean mm-hmm. in a huge amount of ways, post-1950s. I could see where you could come to both, where if you're an English reader, you could come to a very similar position as um, as an American reader. Mm-hmm. But that's quite odd, and I don't actually think any of those things are happening. Yeah. They they kind of just sound like, they they kind of, I mean, she kind of just sounds like Dave at the beginning of the comics, but with more of a, an affect on the speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she really does. And then uh, this is what I get for letting all proper dudes run shit instead of nasty clowns. That that sounds like Dave. Yes. <laughs> well, like, what are you talking about? Public works my ass. What a waste of royal gold. That's Dave. Yes. <laughs> well, and uh, uh, touching on something you said, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm going to pull into the future just to mention it now. There oh. does eventually become a, there is a uh, uh, not. What the something awful thread is very quick to call like a call out post, if I'm remembering this correctly, <gasps> but it's actually a, a fairly measured uh, Tumblr post where someone walks through the Condesses uh, uh, speech and is like, uh, this is a person like the Condesses speech patterns seem to uh, be intended to evoke like a black woman and in particular, like, um, like the 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 persona or like self presentation of uh black women rappers um and then they walk through how like 
all of her speech, like the 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 backup for this, this is like some really good Homestuck criticism, honestly. So I'll definitely mention it on the show again whenever it shows back up in the thread. Uh, mm-hmm. They walk through it and they're like, what this, what this actually is, is that this is a voice written by a white person who has only ever really listened to rap music. Hmm. Right. I mean, I guess that's part of it, too, here is like there's just not enough. The sample size is too small. Right. For like me to have any. I never would have even thought that. I was just like, oh, that's it's an interesting like voice that she has. Mm-hmm. But you know what? She gets 30 lines or something. Yeah. Well, that's none in in Homestuck. That's <laughs> zero lines. <laughs> I mean, I bring uh, it up just because like this this kind of characterization isn't going to go away, and so it'll right, of course. you know, be useful for us to like have that in mind as we think through uh further strategies with the Condess and kind of what's going on here, especially because in in the most literal sense to the story, she is not a black woman, right? She is a uh a fish alien from space. Um right. but Right. Uh, because Hussey has taken big swings in this story about like race and like how you can create a racial characters. It's it's worth sort of like noting and thinking through like what is happening with the Condess then. Uh, and in particular, like I think this is an accident, but like her representation as like chromatically black, right, as a as a black silhouette, uh, which is something she has in common with all of the other like adult trolls like that's how they always show up. Um but like, I don't know, like colors and meaning like words and colors have like resonances, right? That are somehow like culturally constituted or determined. Uh, and mm-hmm. you can insist that uh, uh, blackness uh, in one sense doesn't apply here. Uh, but at the but you can't with the other hand, then like give her these speech patterns or like try to give her this type of voice. Right. Um, right. So, well, I mean, it's got the escape hatch in it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can imagine her as anything you want. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not me is doing that. That's the hussy line. If for whatever reason you haven't listened to the whole show up until this point and you're just <laughs> coming in in this episode, uh, welcome. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you made it an hour and a half into the episode. And all, that's Hussey's argument that we kind of engaged with a while back, right? Like, right. ultimately, at the end of the day, th- this is a character. Uh, with a bunch of, you know, kind of qualities to it. And you can do whatever you want as far as, like, uh, racial or, um, I guess, like, sexual identity maybe as a part of that. Kind of hard to know. Uh, mm-hmm. But there are, like, some ambivalent pieces that you can do whatever you want with. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there's no um, predetermined version of that. But, it, yeah, you're right. It runs into, I mean, everyone is right in the sense of, like, <laughs> if you if you give them a speech pattern, that uh, is evocative of a very particular kind of person in the world, then then, then they're they're <laughs> they have other things right that right. come along with them. Um, oh well. oh well, we'll see what happens when we learn more about her. <laughs> you want will. to tell me about uh, the so-called uh, Wizardy Herbert? Sure thing. Uh, so Wizardy Herbert is a thing that uh, we've known about since late 2011. Uh, that was when Hussey mentioned on Forum Spring that, uh, like, this was in the context of, like, taking stuff from their older work and, like, working it into the new thing. Um, uh, uh, they mentioned that this whole, like, Rose's whole thing about wizards, right, and the idea of wizard fic and, and all that stuff uh, comes out of an unfinished novel 
uh, that they were writing years before. Uh, this is how it was described. Uh, my own absurd wizard fic I wrote some years ago, a pretty healthy sized book I never quite finished. It was called Wizardy Herbert, and it was very flippantly, it was a very flippantly satirical story about kids and magic, starting out as what seemed like an unapologetic Harry Potter spoof revolving around a magical summer camp instead of a school, and then quickly launching off the plot deep end into some very convoluted stuff of Homestuckian proportions. Uh, and in fact, uh, goes through some of the ideas that were uh, uh, really repurposed. So like the complacency of the learned and uh, Rose's whole thing with like the, the Zazerpan wizard, uh, the mm -hmm. complacency and Zazerpan are characters in Wizardy Herbert. Um, mm. uh, as well as in Rose's bedroom on her introduction screen, she has some, uh, drawings of, uh, characters on the wall. These are Hussey's sketches of, uh, two of the characters from Wizardy Herbert, uh, Wizardy, Wizardy Herbert himself and, uh, this, um, young woman named Beatrix. Um, so this is what we know about Wizardy Herbert, right? It's this sort of like lost, unfinished, uh, Hussey project, uh, and whatever it means to have all of, like, the convoluted plot deep end stuff uh, uh, in there, some of that apparently got fold folded into Homestuck. Now, in Homestuck itself, we have Roxy writing uh, Wizardy Herbert, which is presented in text as uh, her writing a story around a really bad piece of fan fiction she already wrote when she was younger of her mother's, that is to say, you know, adult post-scratch uh, Rose's uh, uh, long uh, 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 wizard series of novels, right? Uh, Roxy wrote a, a embarrassing piece of fan fiction about that while she was younger, and now Wizardy Herbert shows up in text as her writing around her own fanfic. <laughs> Are you following that? Yeah, I'm following it. <laughs> so again, here we see like uh, uh, the the meta reflexive move of Hussey like constantly repurposing their own stuff, right? Oh, there's this old unfinished thing that I wrote that I am now writing another story around. Uh, you know, you can take this as his commentary on uh, the process of creating Homestuck. Um, what happens in Wizardy Herbert, the story as we see it in the comic is uh, we get basically like two or three excerpts from it that are just sort of contextless. And I was curious, actually, Cameron, because I already know, uh, you know, Poison by Knowledge. We've, we've got that on record. Michael's Poison by Knowledge. Um, uh -oh. Yeah. Uh, like, what is your sort of take on these showing up? Like, how do you react to these? Uh, in terms of like, what's up with Wizardy Herbert? Yeah. Like what? It what? doesn't mean anything. Yeah. In, in, say more. It's also drawn as Teen Girl Squad. <laughs> yes, yeah. Roxy is like illustrating it. She's doing like Teen Girl Squad illustrations. Teen Girl Squad. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, remember Teen Girl Squad? Let's talk about that instead. <laughs> and that's the next podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Arrowed. <laughs> I met a possum. Ah. <laughs> uh, uh, Teen Girl Squad's great. <laughs> I mean, I haven't watched it in 10 years. Maybe it's not great, but, you know, the things that are lodged in my head. Whatever all you Homestuck kids, the things that you like in Homestuck in this, like, uh, whatever, 8,000-page epic that you enjoy, I got in about 35 seconds on Newgrounds. <laughs> and it was good enough for us. Um, <laughs> But, uh, I don't know. It seems 
fine. Uh, I mean, you only get like three pages or something here, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it reads like a like very goofy Harry Potter fanfic. Uh, of like, uh, and with the additional layer of it's immediately metatextual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, how it works as a layout is we have kind of, uh, it's all pink text because it's Roxy writing and Roxy writes in pink. Mm-hmm. Um, we have kind of the, the text of the story uh, that is like the, the normal like novel narration. And then there are these inset passages that are like giant uh, 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 comic sans uh, passages. And they're filled with like typos and misspellings and grammatical errors uh you know which is attributed here to like you know Roxy being younger when she wrote it and it's kind of like in, you know the the writing in the uh in the comic sans passages is both very earnest and very hacky right it's it's like uh mm-hmm. it's very much like a child writes like uh don't do that he said brashly right like the very strong hard like generic characterizations and things like that um Obviously, like there's a, a resonance here with Russet, sweet. Ver- yeah, Russet opened his eyes and saw someone so handsome he had never seen a boy so intriguing and beautiful before. He had black hair and glasses and about a hundred merit badges <laughs> and then five thousand <laughs> periods and ellipses that goes on for forever. Yes, uh, so, right. I yeah. mean, yeah, it's bad fanfic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the main novel uh, is written in a much more arch, like, uh, you know, Roxy voice style uh, that is about the characters uh, who, as I said in my summary, right, uh, what you can glean from Wizardy Herbert here is that these characters who are in kind of like the quote unquote normal text, right, that Roxy is writing around her old fanfic uh, are characters who have been trapped in the worst story there there's all these references to like them having to move around because of like quote unquote the narrative's invisible conductor and they're con- like the characters are constantly having these like very sassy ironic conversations outside of those uh, comic sans uh uh passages right um they're constantly talking about like uh whether or not they should be following the narrative which is just kind of shuttling them around like it starts out with herbert having shot a kid uh because uh uh, the thing about Wizardy Herbert, uh, and this is something that Hussey explains in their form spring, is that like uh, he's he's stuck in like this Harry Potter like fantasy magic world, uh, but he doesn't believe in magic, so he just goes around shooting things with his gun. Um, and so we start with uh, Herbert having shot one of the other like campers in this fantasy summer camp that he and uh, Beatrix, the other character, are stuck in, um, and. Uh, she's saying something like, you know, you shouldn't do that, uh, like that. That's not really like in the spirit of things. And he's saying like, you know, the narrative didn't say I couldn't do it. Um, Like, you know, the 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 whatever the narrative is saying or like dictating, like they are somewhat free of it, uh, but they mm-hmm. still have to do things that the narrative does. Now, what happens in the thread with Wizardy Herbert and sort of this whole thing uh, is that people begin uh, one trying to figure out like what the hell Wizardy Herbert is about at all. Cause you don't really get a strong sense apart from like what I guess is kind of the conceit here. Um, and they also start uh, taking this thing and trying to make it a clear uh, allegory or like an allegorical foreshadowing of what the end of Homestuck is going to be right. Herbert is this character. Beatrix is this character. Russet is this character and so on. Um, and I don't think like, 
many, many words are written on this. I don't think that they are particularly helpful because I don't think that uh, this, like, I don't think that we should read these uh, insets uh, in that way as like straight up foreshadowing of the end. Uh, I think maybe they are more maybe thematic cruft, right? Uh, talking about like these characters who are uh, stuck in a narrative, but also like in some way askance of it, right? Aware of it. Um, this is becoming increasingly what we have going on in Homestuck, right? With Vriska being mm -hmm. like, well, Troll Society said I should do this, this, and this. And I tried doing this, this, and this, but it didn't make me feel any better. So maybe I should do something else. And mm -hmm. uh, right, that that's Well, it's also uh, Hussy, the character Hussy, too. Uh, how so? Say more. Uh, because because they're in this little narrative, mm -hmm. and they know that like so, especially like when Lord English showed up and killed Hussey, right? Mm -hmm. And he's like trying to get Jack Noir out because 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 Hussey knows what's going to happen, right? All that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. I don't know. It just feels like the same vibe to me of like knowing that you're in a constraint and mm -hmm. then trying to get out of that constraint, right? Um. So. Uh, yeah, they're like, that's what's going on. The other big important thing uh, that happens here uh, is that and this is maybe the, the strangest thing about Wizardy Herbert uh, or rather how Wizardy Herbert works here is that we get the plot twist of Wizardy Herbert, but none of the setup for it, um, which is <laughs> that uh, so uh, there are three characters. I already mentioned them that are kind of the, the basic characters, Wizardy Herbert, uh, Beatrix and Russet. Uh, and there's this fourth character who we get little glimmers of, uh, Grant, who is a character that all of these three characters know um, and then are surprised to find a version of him in the, the shitty wizard fic, as they refer to it. Uh, it turns mm -hmm. out he is a character in the story. He's like the he's what you just read, right? The, the most uh, handsome boy with glasses mm -hmm. and all these merit badges. Uh, but he's mm -hmm. a character in the story named Slynus Marlevort. <laughs> Right. I will say I laughed very hard when I got to Slinus Marlevoort. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it, I mean, as you were saying, sorry, I think I actually cut you off a little bit earlier when you were saying it, but it, it's it's the sweet bro and je hella Jeffification of Harry Potter, right? Right. And in that world, <laughs> someone's name would be Slinus Marlevoort. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, it's very much like with the comic sans and everything. It's it's an echo of the, the sweet bro and hella Jeff aesthetic. Um, so, uh, they, they meet this character named Slinus, who is presented as kind of like the villain of the fic that they're in, but they recognize him as Grant, who is a person that they know outside of the fic and who they then put together has somehow trapped them inside of it. Um, Damn. Right? And so- Oh, like some sort of story that's never ending. Yeah. Uh, and Beatrix is like, uh, trying to figure, like, she's like, cause his name, like, Grant's, uh, character is named like Grant Anonama. Uh, and she's like, oh, damn, I bet this is like, I bet his name is, is an anagram because that's like what, what shitty villains love to do is they love to have a twist and like you, you like, they keep you guessing. And then it turns out that you rearrange the letters of their name and it's something else. And this is of course a reference to Harry Potter and particularly we're uh, thinking here of the second book, Chamber of Secrets, wherein we have, uh, uh, Tom Riddle, uh, who becomes Lord Voldemort, uh, uh, Putting his soul inside of a book. Spoilies, God. Jeez. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry for spoiling uh, a wizard school. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, I got to I got to I got to get out here in front and say. Fuck it. <laughs> fuck it. Uh, okay. right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care about Harry Potter. It's silly <laughs> to me. I, I'm brave enough to say it. <laughs> I don't care about those little kids in that wizard school. 
and uh, their rude ass author who says all kinds of shit that I hate. Right? I don't care about them. No. I'm going to spoil all the books. <laughs> I don't know. Dumble, Dumble Dead. Yeah. Starvicide. Uh, the white haired guy. I didn't read all the books and I didn't see the movie, so I'm not quite sure what happened. <laughs> but uh, it, he loves Thatcher at the end. I yeah. know that. I read the I read the last page of the book. And, right, because I posted uh, that to Twitter to spoil it for everyone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Harry Potter mm-hmm. does love uh, Margaret Thatcher at the end. But anyway, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so uh, in the second Harry Potter book, right, uh, uh, character Jenny, uh, who uh, is Ron's younger sister, ends up finding this uh, enchanted journal that contains the soul of uh, series antagonist Big Bad, Lord Voldemort. And hmm. like the big reveal, like he but he's uh, it's when he was a kid at uh, uh, Hogwarts and he was a kid named Tom Riddle. And one of the big reveals at the end of that novel is uh, he he writes his name out in his like full name in magic, like magic letters with his wand or whatever. And then they rearrange themselves. And it turns out his full name is I like you can rearrange it to I am Lord Voldemort. Um, yes. <laughs> what? Yes. What? <laughs> like somehow, somehow this guy got a name. <laughs> That he could, like his, it's like Tom, I don't remember what his middle name is. It's one of like uh, Rowling's Tom like. Voldemort? Yeah. One of, <laughs> like what the fuck? One of, one of his, uh, like one of Rowling's um, bullshit like fantasy names. It's like Marvolius or something, right? It gives oh, you I all see. the extra letters you need to yeah. uh, <laughs> rearrange it to I am Lord Voldemort. Uh, that's very funny to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that. So, I, yeah, I read like the first four, I think, or something like that. And then I stopped reading them. And mm-hmm. it, I, you know, this is not to, to uniquely dunk on anyone, but just to make a broad cultural commentary. Every time I'm reminded about something that occurred in those novels, I think, how is this cultural infrastructure for anyone? Mm-hmm. Like, I, li- I, you know, I like to give a good old-fashioned dunk on The Lord of the Rings every now and again. I like to do a little silly. I like to talk about them Balrogs, whatnot. Talk about Samwise Gamgee trimming the verge mm-hmm. and how he does it. I like, you know, I'll give Tolkien a little bit of shit, but at least that's like in, in the biggest defense of The Lord of the Rings I've ever made. It's a novel for adults that also works for children. Mm-hmm. There's like some big, but I just don't, I've never got that vibe off of uh, Harry Potter. Nope. That like even it, in its world historical domination, because there's like a war or something that happens at the end. I just, you know, at the end of the day, there's a guy whose name anagrammatizes into I am Lord, Lord Voldemort. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Might as well be his name turns into I am Satan. <laughs> <laughs> so like, what? Hussey <laughs> might have anyway. some similar opinions here uh, because it turns out in, in a similar way that we have, uh, you know, the the Voldemort journal and then we have like the shitty wizard fic. Uh, uh, Beatrix, Herbert and Russet have been trapped inside this story and Beatrix is trying to like she's like, oh, I bet Grant Anonama is an anagram. And then she the one of the last sort of excerpts we get is her realizing uh, that what it uh, sorts out to is not an anagram. <laughs> right? <laughs> so that's the shitty twist. Um and uh the like that's a weird thing. Like I mean, I told you it's the twist of Wizardy Herbert, but we don't really know like what the story of Wizardy Herbert is and then we also get this like long scene where uh Herbert and Beatrix are like playing a wizard sport that is a very clear uh parody of Quidditch. Mm-hmm. Um 
And there's this whole thing about like the the narrator is making them they're like riding flying wooden horses. This is like such a hussy thing. Yes. yes. Uh, and like the the story is making their like flying wooden horses like slowly careen into one another. Uh, and they are both like realizing like, oh, God, the narrative is trying to set up like a stereotypical heterosexual romance between us. Right. Like we're going to like flop on top of each other and like have that moment where, you know, you look into each other's eyes. But then the characters, are they going to kiss? No, they don't. Right. Uh, but that's like the start of the whole thing. And they realize that that's what's happening. Um, So quite crucially. At the beginning of Wizardy Herbert, and this is a thing that goes missing in a lot of the readings in the thread, uh, is that uh, Herbert has no problem shooting the other characters in the story because he doesn't consider them real people. Uh, mm -hmm. Like, they're just they're just fictional constructs. Uh, and then Beatrix uh, points out that they're also fictional. Like, in this really weird, like, oh, uh, uh, sort of indirect way, because it's, it's such a strange idea to kind of wrap your head around i guess um yeah so uh what this what how this begins right uh is i think you were supposed to just tackle him beatrix said looking all kinds of put off wizardy herbert reached down to the body of the fictional camper he just shot and picked up the flag same difference is it this is some lame magical version of Capture the Flag. The book wanted me to capture the flag for him. The flag has now been captured. Anyway, he's just a kind of brainless puppet. Then what are we? She asked. I don't know. Brainless puppets who spent a few years in the real world? Kind of like everyone else, I suppose. Geez, that's cynical. Anyway, you're the one who said we should let the story play out the way it's supposed to. I'm just pointing out your own rules. So, hmm. you know, uh... That weird move from, oh, he's just like some sort of puppet, right, to then, what are we? Oh, we're just brainless puppets who spent a few years in the real world, kind of like everyone else, I suppose. And she says that's cynical. So very, very uh, uh, interesting moves made here. One, uh, Beatrix and Wizardy Herbert are also fictional characters. Uh, but within the world of this story, it appears that they are not or like they they got out of the book somehow and now have been put back in so like something weird is going on here uh and the point that i want to make is that you cannot really reverse engineer what wizardy herbert is about from this because uh as hussy intimated there's some weird convoluted shit going on uh I know what happens in Wizardy Herbert, uh, which is unfinished, uh, because I have read the draft that uh, within a few weeks of this update posting is rediscovered on Hussey's website in a directory that they didn't lock. Wow. Yeah, right. The The fandom uh, locates it immediately or not immediately, but like the fandom locates this uh, unsecured directory on Hussey's website. Uh, which is filled with not just uh, the draft of Wizardy Herbert, but like some old comics and some like personal pictures and stuff like that. Uh, and <clears throat> very shortly after, like the directory gets locked. But by that point, it's too late. Like the Wizardy Herbert stuff has been downloaded. Uh, and so I want to be careful here about like how much I do bring in because one is that I don't think it's a good analytical move to make a lot of claims about Homestuck based on this like unfinished project that uh, might be obliquely related to it at best. Mm -hmm. But also because like for whatever, you know, reason and like this doesn't have to be explicit, like you, an artist can do what they want with their art. Hussey appears to have not wanted uh, people to have access to uh, this document. Nevertheless, it's kind of it's out there. And I read it because I was extremely intrigued by these excerpts and by what uh, Hussey said about the 
the plot elements, right, that it becomes very convoluted and weird in the way that Homestuck does. Those are the things that I like best about Homestuck. So, of course, given the opportunity, and I don't think to myself, well, at some point, I'm going to be in a position where I'm doing a podcast on Homestuck and have to provide some sort of justification or rationalization for this. Uh, mm-hmm. I just go ahead and read it. Um, and it does, it is, in fact, about uh, uh, fictional characters who get put into the real world and then somehow get put back into the fiction from which they originated with kind of like different experiences that make them uh, bad fits for the story that they now inhabit. Mm-hmm. In big picture, right? That's kind of the move that it's it's uh, uh, building toward. Uh it uh, has these sort of kind of four central characters, uh, Beatrix, uh, Russet, uh, Grant, and Wizardy Herbert himself. Uh, the whole thing takes place in a like slightly alternate version of 2004, uh, where like, you know, imagine like the Harry Potter craze happened in the early 2000s, uh, but it, it didn't happen because of Harry Potter. It just sort of happened, right? For some reason, and, and it happened like sort of multifariously. Like everyone got into uh, like the, the cultural craze, right? The, the cultural determinant of the United States became uh, young adult wizard fiction. Mm-hmm. And there's like all sorts of uh, series that are all about this. Uh, one of them is Harry Potter, but like, ha ha ha, it turns out that J.K. Rowling is a pen name uh, that the publisher put on it because uh, they didn't think that the books would sell if people knew that uh, they were actually written not by uh, a pleasant white British woman, uh, but a young black man from uh, like the Bronx. Right. That's that's hussy. Yep, that's a little twist. I was wondering where you were. Where were you? Where were you, bud? There Uh, you are. That's that's your whole deal. Uh, All that said, um, geez, uh, you know, uh, Wizardy Herbert uh, is very. It's much mm, how I. It is uh, hussy's first attempt at rewriting the Neverending Story. Right. With these like fictional characters popping in and out of books. Right. The actual name of the novel is called Wizardy Herbert and the Mobius Slipknot. Uh, And the Mobius Slipknot is this device uh, that is just starting to get explained in the novel when uh, the draft ends. Uh, But basically what it is, is it's like a a device that allows you to uh, switch places with a character in a book. Uh, so like you, you pull out the fictional character into your life and then you go into the book and become the character, inhabit them and like, you know, live through the story as whatever. Uh, and then the characters who pop out are like these sort of, uh, weird mindless automatons that slowly gain sentience and cognizance. Uh, and it's eventually like it, it's very strongly implied again, the novel is unfinished and it's unclear where any of this is going to go. I'm not even sure if there was an ending in mind, um, but the uh, ultimate sort of uh, thing seems to be that uh, Herbert, Beatrix, and Russet um, are all characters from this wizard book uh, that was written by a, like, how to put this, a very pitiful young man from suburban New Jersey named Lewis uh, and his wizard fic wizardy Herbert uh, is written in like comic sans with all of these spelling errors and so on. Um, you know, it's, it, it reads as a little mean, but like what is 
notable about Wizardy Herbert in general is that uh, the meanness is almost like Stephen King in that, mm-hmm. like, Lewis isn't just, like, not particularly smart, um, but he's also, uh, he's a fat kid, and he has a brother named uh, uh, Seymour who's also a fat kid, and there's, like, all sorts of jokes about uh, their fatness. Um, but Lewis... Uh, is also, like, uh, uh, strongly implied to be a closeted gay uh, kid. Hmm. Um, And this is where, like, things get really interesting and what I have been gesturing toward when I say that Act 6 feels like Hussey trying to revisit some things they've been trying to hit for a while. Um, All of the stuff about Lewis and Seymour plays so much as a joke, right? Uh, uh, Lewis having kind of, like, he has a a cardboard cutout in his room of uh, Kevin Sorbo as Hercules. Um... And it's like, you know, I just have it because I like stories of adventure and I love it when, uh, you know, like the the two main characters in my wizard series are two boys who love to hang out with each other. Uh, and this is played as kind of a joke at his expense. Um, but then once they end up in the story, uh, the relationship between uh, Russet and the Grant character, uh, who is also like from the story, right, is. Uh, is very much like, oh, they're kind of in love with each other. Or like Russet is in love with Grant, right? Grant is kind of like this custodian to Russet because uh, they live in like, there's like a weird fantastical world uh, that is kind of like the world of Fantastica from the Neverending Story, but something bad happened there. Uh, sort of the implied like background of what happened is that like the United States government uh, discovered, basically, imagine the Neverending Story, right? Uh, there's a... a, a alternate dimension of imagination that you can access through a book. What if the U.S. government uh, discovered that and started uh, making it into a war machine, right? Like, what if they uh, started, like, putting uh, military bases there and... Mm -hmm. uh, Like uh, uh, some sort of talisman. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, like, you know, what if there's, like, a magic summer camp, which is, like, this parody of Hogwarts? Like, by the time Wizardy Herbert and all of uh, the other characters get there, um, it's been basically destroyed. It's, like, post-apocalyptic because there was, like, a a nuclear war with, like, magic nukes that turned things into candy. Um, So they end up, like... (laughs) In this weird... This happens in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, by the way. Oh, great. <laughs> in, uh, uh, I, I mean, spoilers, I guess, for, like, the last book of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. This will not change your experience mm-hmm. of reading it, I promise, if this is someone, something you're interested in. But uh, James Bond nukes Fairyland. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Prospero has to reverse it. <laughs> he has Thank you, Shakespeare. To do it. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it's like, uh, the Americans and like the Russians, right? Uh, parts of the novel. So how it starts is like Wizardy Herbert starts out as just like uh, a kid from suburban New Jersey whose name is Wizardy Herbert for some reason. And then as you read it, you figure out like, oh, he got pulled out of a, uh, one of these books. And there's like some sort of like magic bullshit contravents that means that like once he got pulled out of the book people just treated him like he was always supposed to be there and he basically gets adopted by lewis and seymour's family none of this Mm -hmm. is presented by the like wizardy herbert is written like homestuck in that it is uh wildly fragmentary and it's constantly jumping around between time frames and you have to like work around to like put things in order so like lewis and seymour 
don't even show up until like half of the current extant draft, right? I'm I'm like warping all of this around and trying to talk about it and sort of like where I see these resonances. Um, so once uh, uh, Wizardy Herbert and Beatrix and Russet have like met up in kind of this like weird post-apocalyptic fantasy world, um, they also meet Grant, who is Russet's friend. And Grant and Russet have kind of been hanging out in the fantasy world forever. Uh, but the relationship between them, which is that Russet is kind of this like, he's kind of like, what if Harry Potter and Ron were the same character? Um, because he's like a really good magic user. Uh, he like has awesome fashion set. Like he's like this cool guy who everyone likes. Uh, and then he also has like these huge depressive episodes, uh, and Grant like gives him medication for them. And it's sort of unclear whether or not the medication is like helping or hurting Russet. Um, there's, there's like this queer, like there's this queer relationship between them, but there's also this like, uh, a weird, uh, manipulative undercurrent right like it's not clear what's going on there uh russet also just like is constantly being made a fool of like he's constantly like falling over or like you know getting hit in the head and stuff uh it's dirk and jake right like this is these two characters are kind of the first run at dirk and jake and then beatrix uh is interesting because she has feelings for both of them, right? Like, this this novel, similar to Homestuck, is, like, completely absurd in the description. Uh, but then when it gets to these relationships between these characters, like, Beatrix is, like, thinking about how much, uh, like, she meets Russet, and she's like, oh, this guy seems really cool and competent. And then she meets him uh, when he's having one of his depressive episodes, and she's like, oh, this guy kind of sucks. Oh, but his friend Grant, Grant's really cool. But also Grant kind of doesn't give her the time of day because he's really interested in Russet. Uh, and Herbert kind of has a thing for Beatrix, but uh, feels inadequate next to Russet and Grant. So all of this stuff is just like, you know, a, a kind of prototype of the Alpha Kids. Hmm. Again, I don't know uh, where all of this is going to go, and I think you have to be careful about taking uh, readings of Wizardy Herbert and porting them onto Homestuck, but I think what this uh, allows me to do, right, is sketch a kind of genealogy here uh, to show that uh, these the concerns of Act 6, which are very often approached as kind of like bubbling up from nowhere or as a result of Hussey's interactions directly with the Homestuck fandom— um, there was something prior to that, right? Like, there seems to be something about uh, these characters or, like, this, uh, like, these complicated nest of relationship dynamics um, that Hussey was interested in and wanted to revisit for Act 6. Now, why that is, who knows, but it's something to put on the table. Um, then the other thing to sort of make explicit, then, that you should maybe not let color your reading of Homestuck too much and that I've sort of glossed over, is that Homestuck gives you the twist of Wizardy Herbert, which it turns out Grant is like the bad guy. Grant is Voldemort. Uh, he's like an alternative copy of Slynus, who's like the actual Voldemort, uh, who had like he specifically has been made uh, in order to like compromise whatever uh, resistance that Russet, Beatrix and uh, Herbert have because and this is more like Homestuck Act 6 stuff, all of these characters have like vague memories of uh, older versions of themselves who they thought of as like their older siblings. Um, this is actually particularly true in Beatrix's case. Uh, and the, the draft never quite states this explicitly, uh, but they're like 
version like they are versions from another run at the novel right who like lived in this fantasy world and grew up several years uh and then have put in motion some sort of plan by like pulling new versions of themselves out of the book uh and like trying to leave uh uh tools for them to take down whatever the fuck like slyness is up to by but like grant is like his his uh ace in the hole right i i cannot i will never understand I mean, maybe wait, actually one day I might understand. I strive <laughs> to understand why Hussey likes this maneuver so much. Yeah. I mean, like uh, the, the meta move of what if the story is in the story is in the story. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. L- literally in everything we have looked at. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. It is. It's really fascinating. Uh, I... Don't know what to say about it. Uh, you could read it cynically, like uh, Herbert does in our excerpt here in Homestuck, uh, that what are real people, but just like fictional characters that we pretend are real. Um, I don't think. Boom. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't endorse that. I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, but yeah, so Wizardy Herbert is very strange. Um, uh, some other kind of like high level observations. Uh, it is. I described how it can be kind of like mean and uncharitable to its characters, how it can have kind of the same uh, shitty humor, particularly with like, what if J.K. Rowling was actually a young black man? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, it is nowhere nearly as uh, sharply mean as Homestuck gets, right? The the hostility hmm. that we often talk about or sort of like the edge, the resentment uh, that can seep into some of the the ways that you might read Homestuck. That is not in Wizardy Herbert at all. In fact, Wizardy Herbert, uh, apart from uh, like the the relationship drama, is really kind of like the the heaviest part, right? Like it treats the the uh, feelings among those characters as pretty sincere or weighty. Um, but even like the ma- like the the nuclear war, right? The fact that it's magical nukes is just like it's very much like a, a early two thousands woo monkey cheese internet humor. In fact. Uh, the the extant draft of Wizardy Herbert. Uh, sorry for the spoilers here. Uh, do you know why it takes place in 2004, Cameron? Uh, no, I don't. It takes place in the summer of 2004 because that's when Ronald Reagan died. Because the draft ends with Ronald Reagan going god tier. Okay. Yeah, I don't know where that's going, but it's like, like. During, when the U.S. government found, like, the fantastical other world, like, it was during the Reagan administration, and it's implied that, like, Reagan has uh, installed some sort of, uh, like, plan in, in like, the, the fantasy alternate dimension uh, that resurrects him and makes him some sort of, like, horrible god. So, I mean, I guess Ronald Reagan is Lord English in this analogy. <laughs> I guess so. I don't know. Uh, anyhow... Um, that's that's all to say that, uh, you know, Wizardy Herbert is this thing that exists, and I think it's mostly useful for seeing um, the shift in Hussey as an artist, right? The the things that it really underscores for me uh, are, like, the uh, very arch David Foster Wallace-esque uh, way that Wizardy Herbert is written. Uh, in fact, there's a shout-out to uh, the Depends Adult Undergarment, which feels like very much a... a a knowing infinite jest uh, uh, illusion. Um, so the the sort of lightheartedness of Wizardy Herbert uh, stands in stark contrast to 
the ways that Homestuck can get kind of really edgy and mean, right? Uh, uh, something changed in kind of like Hussey's outlook or in sort of like what they were interested in putting into their work uh, between 2004 and then. Um, the other thing, again, that it underscores is uh, the insistence on these relationship issues as somehow important to whatever the work that they're making is. Uh, and then, like, thirdly, just it cannot be overstated the degree to which Wizardy Herbert is an attempt to riff on the never, like, Hussey says it's a Harry Potter spoof. And it is, right? But it's a Harry Potter spoof by way of the never-ending story. Um, and that's exactly what we get in Homestuck with uh, another attempt to kind of take the mechanics of the never-ending story and extrapolate them out in different ways. Uh, uh, in, in like make it and in the process, make a story that's like hopelessly weird and convoluted. Mm -hmm. So no, that's, that's wizardy Herbert chat. Um, it's, I, I'm, I'm not going to, people will ask me this. You don't have to bother to read wizardy Herbert. Uh, again, like Hussey sort of took it down. So maybe like they don't want people to, I don't think that there's anything like super horrible in it. Uh, it is in fact nicer, but it's also like, it's an unfinished draft, right? Like this is, this is me doing research and basically reading the author notes that are available to me and trying to, to speculate about, um, you know, trying to divine like what are Hussey's preoccupations? And as you've pointed out, Cameron, one of those seems to be for whatever reason, right? The, the meta move that puts the story within the story. Right. I just it, it it's so fascinating to me because I think that that is a I think that's easier like it is more complicated that sounds very insulting I don't mean it to be um I it is it is more difficult to do a story well told within the con constrictions of storytelling like qua mm -hmm. storytelling it is more difficult to do that than to begin doing that and then just poke fun at the mechanisms that make stories happen. Mm -hmm. um, it is harder to tell a story straight up than it is to tell a story about the bullshit of stories. Mm -hmm. I just think that's just flatly true. Um, and so it is fascinating to me. It, you know, this kind of goes back all the way to the beginning of this part of episode when we were talking about, uh, you know, it seems like Hussey's just uninterested in reading or in writing the relationships, right? Mm-hmm. It seems like Husky is uninterested in writing the story, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Which is kind of like where plot goes away, right? Like that doesn't seem to be their preoccupation. So I, I, and I'm not saying that in terms of like, well, it's because Hussey's lazy. I don't think that's the case. I do think it is because their preoccupations lie somewhere else, but it is in a place where those preoccupations just happen to land in a spot where the hard work never has to actually happen, mm -hmm. which is like, Characters have development. They change over time in relationship to external circumstances. And then in Homestuck, overwhelmingly, the external circumstances happen off screen or they happen in um, uh, in flashes. And then we get some sort of break, you know, between those characters. And then we get how we get them talking about in past tense how they dealt with the thing. Right. Like action is always deferred either forward or backward in time. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe, and, and I think from a character perspective, you know, from people who are engaged in these characters as characters, that's like totally fine. You actually don't need that stuff. But I do think that given what you just said and given some of the stuff that we've talked about in this part episode, I think that maybe what I've experienced as um, like, where's the plot? Like, where's the, the story 
happening. Mm-hmm. I think that what I've been thinking of in those terms is maybe just I've been misapprehending what's happening, which is just that the instead of like the plot not happening, it's that it's always distributed somewhere else. And that ultimately maybe it doesn't matter so much as far as like what Hussey cares about here, mm-hmm. um, which is poking at the mechanisms, poking at the structure, talking about the big meta move. And I think what's so fascinating about the kind of intertextual thing going on here is that the never ending story does both mm-hmm. like very well. Mm-hmm. It, it bounces back and forth uh, in really powerful ways. We never really get the first half of the never ending story in this comic. No, we don't. You know what I mean? In, mm-hmm. in terms of like a story well told about a thing that happens in a fantasy world. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really ever happen. It's mm-hmm. all the second half of the never ending story. Um, and I guess that's pretty interesting too. Like think of in context and think about it in the context also of Wizardy Herbert, which is kind of another run at that, but through a different, slightly different genre constraint, set of genre constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, so, you know, I think with all this context, I think this does explain some of the friction I've had with Homestuck is it's just not preoccupied. It's preoccupied with all the pieces of storytelling that are, um, not the things that I find the most interesting. Mm-hmm. Which is like the story well told. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I think that makes, uh, I think that adds up because so much of Homestuck formally is about being badly told. Right. Right. <laughs> and there's something interesting too about like, a, you know, a, a whole, I don't know, like a massive fandom that experiences this as like the good kind of story. Mm-hmm. Which like, like that's arbitrary. That's like, you know, that always happens, and not to become like a Kantian on it, because I'm not a Kantian, right? But that's <laughs> always within like a census communist, right? Like your understanding of what aesthetics is and the good and the bad aesthetically is always developed socially. It, it it always has to do with how you interact with things. There's nothing inherent to the human that makes for good and bad stories, right? Like that, you know, that that that's uh that's all ideology, right? Mm-hmm. Um and so like, yeah, it makes sense to me that there's a bunch of uh people running around for whom Homestuck is like very formative. And so like uh the traditional story, you know, I say traditional in the sense of like the science fiction fantasy or fantasy story as it was developed nineteen thirty to nineteen or to two thousand, we'll say you know, which, uh, uh, which is a fairly finite t- period of time. Like that's just insufficient for them to like be the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it kind of explains to me like backward things I didn't really understand, which is like, um, why is getting the ninth so popular in and of itself? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and it's because it's playing in this universe as much as it is the traditional science fiction kind of stuff. Right? Exactly. It, it plays for multiple audiences in that way. Um, and is playing with kind of stuff. Cause I'll be honest, like, you know, forgetting the ninth, I've always been put off. I haven't read that book, but I've always been put off by like the way it's talked about. Like, oh, there's like internet memes in it and stuff like that. And I've always been like, well, what does that what does that mean, right? Like, uh, but now, kind of on the other end, Homestuck, I'm like, oh, this is for like a huge chunk of readership in the genre space at this point. Like, th- th- those two things are not different for them. Like the traditional f- science fiction story versus the kind of like in jokey thing going on. Right. Um, well, it's and that's a, always been going on, right? Like Severian's a cosplay character. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. So you know, so that's like me like making some bullshit rules up when that's like not even true, right? Like it's just a transformation in the audience, not a qualitatively different kind of audience. Well, and I think it speaks to what I was talking about earlier in this part episode about uh, you know, trying to trying to uh work out the 
like theory of body mind that would apply to Caliborn. Right. Uh, where the the story is less about like uh, look at the first half of the never ending story. Here is a character. The character gets put into a situation. They meet challenges. They overcome those challenges. They accomplish some sort of goal and have like growth. Right. Right. Um, Something happens. Right. Uh, that's uh, like Homestuck and sort of like this increasing engagement with Homestuck and what you just described about with with Gideon the Ninth um, is the question is not like, does this tell a story? Right. The question is, what are the grappling points for me as a reader? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Like, oh, uh, where where can I like get my hands in and like uh, form a kind of like attachment to a relationship or to this character? Um, are there spaces for me to fill in? Right. Uh is there are there relationships that I can sort of speculate about or like are there going to be jokes for me the reader because I recognize internet memes and that sort of thing um and it is it is like uh you know I homestuck made this world right and I think it indexes at least in part uh you know a huge change in the way that uh genre readers interface with fiction mm-hmm you know, cosplay and fandom has been happening forever, but like the the cart gets put before the horse in, in kind of a, a big way, I guess I would say. Right. Like the the mode of engagement um, really shifts now toward like making space for fan interaction or sort of like mm -hmm. fan engagement uh, in a way that just wasn't the case however many decades ago. Yeah. And, and you know, there's been a lot of writing about this uh, actually in the past few weeks about uh uh, the novella. Have you have you caught any of this stuff in the science fiction fantasy space? The, I haven't the, caught this. No, like the novella as a form. Yeah, the novella as a form, which is like in the post torification, you know, of the genre of or genre writing, you know, that where tor is like a massive powerhouse and mm -hmm. you know dominates uh, a lot of the uh, I don't know readership. Um. You know, the novel like people are publishing novellas now and they are reading them independently. So it's not like, you know, you get a copy of a magazine and there was like one novella, you know, like a, you know, uh, uh, fantasy and science fiction or something. And, you know, there's one novella in like eight short stories or whatever. Uh, now it's just like people are releasing novellas as straight up, you know, standalone work. And, you know, you can download them on the t Kindle or whatever. And they're treated the same as any other novel. Or whatever, and it's also kind of transformed what people are expecting. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting who. Maybe it was a piece for Book Riot that I was reading. I, if I had it in front of me, I would I would cite it here. But the the claim the author was making with some quotations from other people, um, kind of in the space, was like that's actually changed the way that uh, of like what the expectations are for a completed piece of um, genre work. So now it's not just like, oh hey, did you um, you know, is it a traditional novel? It's like you can write basically kind of like a slice of life story in a fantasy universe that doesn't really have a beginning, middle, and an end, you know, in the traditional sense of that. Uh, but it's just about like uh, context and like a little thing that happens and then you're done and it can plug into some other work later on, you know, so it's kind of serial, but kind of not, mm -hmm. um, you know, it has this really kind of ambivalent space to it. But that all that transformation makes a lot of sense to me in a world in which um, things like Homestuck, obviously Homestuck did not literally make this world, but it's a piece of this world. Uh, and it's one that kind of shows you in the worst case scenario, Homestuck is a weather vane, right? It shows you the way the wind is blowing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, I, I think that the, the kind of novella 
maneuver that's happening here. And also on the other end, things in the the macro culture, the dominant stuff, like the MCU, where everything is a piece of a whole, and it's okay to get a little piece of the whole. People are happy to take that, as opposed to something that is truly, you know, a self-contained story. You know, this was kind of the discussion around, um, uh, uh, what, Civil War? Because that's technically a Captain America movie. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, but people were like, this should have just been called, like, an Avengers film. Yeah, Captain America Civil War, right? And so, it, you know, it's a movie that makes no sense if you don't have the context for it. Like, mm-hmm. like, it, like the, none of the characters make much sense if you haven't seen the first stuff. You don't know why conflicts are occurring if you haven't seen other things. I mean, uh, I actually saw it having not seen most of that wave of stuff. I watched it on the airplane, and I was like, well, I know who all these people are from the comic books, but, like what's Paul Rudd doing in this thing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, that kind of stuff going on. But that's all to say, like, I think we are, you know, in the way that Stephen Shaviro many years ago wrote about post-cinematic affect, right? And the idea that we are very comfortable uh, in the new millennium with blowing up classic Hollywood style, right? Mm-hmm. Like, invisible cinema is no longer necessary. We can follow things, you know. You should People, if you're curious about how much can a human being follow action that makes no coherent spatial sense or... Uh, narratological sense in any kind of way. Just watch uh, Ambulance, the new Michael Bay film. Beautiful work <laughs> of like absolute um, exploded cinema. And I mm-hmm. say that in a positive way. I think that movie is actually very interesting, um, especially visually very interesting. Um, but that's to say, I think that's happening in a lot of different places. I think we are very, uh, I, I think in a general sense, we have mo- moved toward happiness with the fragment. Uh, and that the fragment is the the privileged form at this point, mm-hmm. and and not grasping the totality, right? The beginning, the middle, and the end doesn't really matter so much mm-hmm. um, because there's always going to be sequelification, and there's always going to be some prehistory that you don't have context for that you can read about on the wiki. Um, and so, like, I think that's tied in with what what's going on with Homestuck, right? I think twenty the twenty early twenty tens is the inflection point where a lot of the stuff is coming together and maneuvering, which is to say, like, I, I recognize that in some of my desires for the, the, the thing that existed beforehand, I'm just a dinosaur, right? Like my mode of aesthetic appreciation just developed in a different time. That's not this time. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I have not been able to make the transformation over toward happiness with the fragment, um, you know, for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. which is not to it's so it is the mode please let me be very clear it is the mode of the youtube video it's the mode of media analysis it is the mode of everyone on uh, the planet who needs to write a conclusion to then moralize that right mm-hmm. of like and and so then therefore it's bad i think the mcu is bad but for different reasons <laughs> it's not that it's always deferred and it's always fragmentary um this is not a moralizing here. I don't think that the thing I grew up in is somehow inherently better than the thing that kids today are growing up in or that people that, um, you know, engaged with Homestuck grew up in. Um, I don't, you know, that, that, that's a false binary. That's like weird moralizing about, uh, just some, a changing media mode. Uh, but it is, has been interesting to kind of work through this comic so far. And, and as we're kind of on the, uh, uh, the, the wizard's quarter mm-hmm. here in the wizard's um, quarter, yeah, in order to see like where it's going. And I'm very curious about what the actual people who read it, what they thought about it at the end. Because I, I do get a sense, even though I don't really know exactly what happens at the end of the Homestuck, I do get a sense it's very controversial. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess we'll get there. It was a long part episode. It was. I mean, we had a lot to cover, I guess, even though the reading was kind of thin. 
let me ask one question, and I don't want you to elaborate at all. I just okay. want you to answer the question in as short uh, sense that you can, because uh, we got to end this episode. Part yeah. two. Um, Roxy mm -hmm. is in the little dream space, whatever. Okay. Caliborn is behind her and then puts on a little hat, puts on the troll costume, and is Calliope. Right? What? Where? What? <laughs> right? That happens. That's not Caliborn. That's Calliope. So that's why I'm asking you. Right. That's why I'm asking. Okay. Yes. All right. So, so that, that, that is my question is that, so, behind and it you know is smiling but yeah on like 5612 that is actually calliope and that's not some sort of caliborn pretending to be calliope no okay i'm just making sure mhm mm okay good looking for ghost calliope now mhm mm also let me say this you know i've been uh, i've been a little bit negative about the visual imaginary of homestuck recently and I'm going to say this, 5623 and 5624, in which everyone gets wake-up powder thrown in their face, mm -hmm. that's great to me. Yeah, yeah, Calliope throwing the, the wake-up dust in Rose and Roxy's yeah. face is good. And then anti-sleeping magic, yes. which just appears to just be yelling. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's great. That's good to me. You should, uh, you should promote the episode when you do the tweet. It should be anti-sleeping magics. Okay, all right, will do. Uh, so that wraps this up uh, next time we will continue with episode 9 uh, part 2 and so for next part episode I would like you to read up to page uh, 5926 and uh, that'll well some stuff is going to happen is what I'll, what I'll say powerful <laughs> goodbye goodbye